to um hold on a second as i was saying earlier well let me just start this off right shabbat shalom everybody this is the unexpected cosmology my name is as you can see here on the screen noel joshua hadley it's great to see you guys here old faces new faces and tonight is it might be a record for how much material i have to get through tonight i cannot divide this up i can't do a part one part two it's just not going to work that way now to my knowledge there there might be other people out there that have said that donner party was a hoax several years ago or before i ever got to it to my knowledge i was the first that came out and said this was a total hoax no way this happened and just recently i've dusted off an old this old paper and i've updated it this will be the first time i'm ever reading it off this is going to be in four parts the first two is going to be a lot of genealogy i got a few years ago i was really into like genealogy and trying to figure out who's related to who and how that plays out with spooks and so on and so forth the first two are going to be genealogy if if that's like so think of it it's going to be like uh the the you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so chapters of the Bible. And just hang with me on those because in the last two, we're going to get into the cannibalism and into the narrative. And I think you're going to find that really fascinating. So hopefully my voice holds out. Hopefully my eyes hold out. And I just realized that I started, I jumped into this and I wasn't totally ready to go. So let me get this all good. I think we're good. All right, so I dropped the PDF into the, the chat. The Donner Party was a hoax by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley, first published on 7-1-2020, so that was three years ago, almost to the date. And you can see there are the four parts. So if you already need caught up to speed, we are on page three, part one, the Royal House of Hastings. The first lesson of the Donner Party is to never take a shortcut. Stay off the grass. Follow the leader. Do as you're told. Don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. Keep as far away from Antarctica, <laughs> Antarctica as is humanly possible. It's cold and miserable, and there's nothing to film there but penguin documentaries. I think that's a reference to Happy Feet. And Buzz Aldrin photo ops, because of course, Buzz Aldrin, they love to take him to fictional locations, the moon, but also the Titanic. Everyone is welcome, but if you try for it, men with snorkel gear and guns will greet you because the Antarctic Treaty made the outer lands off limits, but come anyways. In the case of the Bermuda Triangle, you may just end up watching a NASA rocket arch into the ocean. And that's a naughty no-no for the space program hoax. If you ever find yourself being chased down by shirtless Caribbeans wielding a single harpoon cannon and semi-automatics, but they're not Disney animatronics, then it was nice knowing you. We will be sure to remind everyone that you were never suicidal. The Donner screwed up royally, and so the answer on the test is cannibalism. Do you remember that Twilight Zone episode where after astronauts, it's laughable, they were actually... They were, of course, actor astronauts. And it's funny is that astronauts now are actors as well, making movies. But 
we're indoctrinated and gullible enough to believe they've crash landed on an asteroid despite oxygen and an earth and blue sky. One crew member kills everyone off, hoping for the last drop of water, and then discovers telephone poles. Cue Rod Sterling's cigarette toting voice. For all I know, the Donner Party hoax was intended to keep people away from Highway 80 and the Union Pacific Railroad and telephone poles. Also, everyone needed to arrive at a fully formed San Francisco right on schedule. That would be a reference to my paper, the 1849 California Gold Rush hoax, which we went over last week for those of you who were there. In it, I explore the events surrounding the Manifest Destiny push to repopulate California, specifically San Francisco, which was an inherited millennial kingdom city, according to at least my opinion on the matter. I specifically detailed how the MMM, the Mormons and the Masons and the military, were involved in the propaganda, and I barely begun to peel back the onion layers on that one. It was actually during the dig that I stumbled upon a rather interesting factoid. Donner Party member James Reed showed up at Sutter's Fort in October of 1846. He was a Freemason. Then again, John Sutter was a Freemason, as was James Marshall. But we've covered those clowns already. And in case you're curious, the founders of the Mormon Church, like San Franciscan newspaper man Samuel Brannan, were Freemasons. They all were. As I was saying, James Reed was a member of the Donner Party. We shall deal more closely with the events of the Donner Party, uh, the Donner Reed hoax, a little later down the road, because much like the Donners, I've taken a detour. I have stuck my nose where it doesn't belong, and that's bad for business. Should I ever care to work in the history department at an accredited Luciferian university ever again, or really any professorship or whatever in a university? I think, I think I've uh, I've uh, secured my not getting hired a long time ago. I immediately asked myself where the Donner Reed party began. The answer is easy and can be found in the most basic and straightforward internet reconnaissance mission, Independence, Missouri. I called a fellow sleuth up on the phone, a Missouri man, and he responded, lots of giants in Missouri, cannibal giants. Makes sense, I shrugged. When it came to their latest PSYOP, the Missouri Mormons had to pull their creative ideas from somewhere. Cannibal giants, he once more reminded me, putting an added emphasis on the giants this time around. Sure, but the media isn't interested in giants. They're only interested in making news about average height cannibals played by actors. We have before us yet another example of how the truth is inverted and a good indicator for when intel communities are invested. Our controllers uh, like to remind us of their psyops every five to 10 years, mostly for nostalgia purposes, much like Disney pulling an animated movie out of their vault. And I, I pointed this out like in, in past papers, it's like every five years, you can look at these, these Intel psyops and they just, they remind you of it in the news. So we're on the, the 35th anniversary of Woodstock. We're on the 40th anniversary of Woodstock. Oh, we're on the 50th anniversary, the 55th anniversary of the, the moon landing. You know, it just goes on and on, right? Every so often, they like to spin the narrative. It's for our entertainment, but mostly just to prolong the expiration date, keep it fresh, or <laughs> keep it fresh or relevant. The Smithsonian Institute, 
though it will always be the, let me, I need a drink. I'm not ready yet, guys. Give me a second here. Shalom to everyone who's just joined us. The Smithsonian Institution. See, I, I was getting ahead of myself there. It's actually the Smithsonian Institution, though it will always be the Institute to me. That's a Mandela effect thing. That just blew my mind when it, it, it swapped from institution to institute. Just blew my mind. Was founded by Jesuits and other participants on August 10th, 1846 in Washington, D.C., just in time for Manifest Destiny. Though, have you seen the Smithsonian Institution castle as of late? Totally inherited. Almost immediately, we discovered them showing up on random farms to haul off the man-eating, red-headed giant bones being dug up, while elsewhere, the media simultaneously calls over the loudspeakers, reservation for daughter party on Truckee Lake, report to ancient... Report to Agent Lansford at Fort Bridger, Wyoming. I've already given too much away. Just know that the Donner Party started out on the Oregon Trail. The moral of the story is to, rem uh, to remain on the Oregon Trail until the government tells you they finally gotten around to building the I-80 over Donner Pass. That being said, I wanted to know why they veered from the established route of a perfectly good flop floppy disk PC game, and who was responsible for leading them there? That's where a man named Lansford Hastings and a shortcut called Hastings Cutoff comes in. Even the name sounds like a proverbial cliff. We might easily imagine Agent Hastings making the, hey, ps, 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 I can't even do it, the ps sound with a wave of his wormy finger from some seedy alleyway in Fort Bridger, Wyoming. But that's not what we're told actually happened. Lansford Hastings left post-it notes in the desert. Yep, post-it notes, suggesting that Oregon Trail wagoneers entrust him with his newly discovered trail, thereby avoiding the established route, and altogether arriving to California weeks ahead of schedule, which obviously didn't work out that way. Donner and Reed took the advice of a piece of paper on a rock. Sounds legit. The rest is history. Now, I am offering you yet another reminder that Wikipedia likes to deliver the most important accomplishments of their spooks in the opening sentence of each file. And I, I took the, uh, the scissors out there on that page. Lansford Hastings has a page on the top of the search results, and it is there where we immediately learn that he was a white supremacist, American explorer, and Confederate soldier. Oh, dear. Talk about having absolutely no redeeming value as a spook. And then you can see my edit there. Oh, you've, you've got to be kidding me. See, this is why I take the time to photograph the internet and then take the scissors to it. My FBI agent is a fan of my work. He reads each paper and then rewrites the wiki articles just to screw with me. I know I sound paranoid right now, but I have observed this happening time and time and time again. It even happened after I wrote the first edition of my Jim Morrison paper. I apparently came too close to the truth because they rewrote nearly the entire article afterwards. Everything that I quoted, they took out. I'm not making this up. And here again, I give you a discreet quote from the opening line of Wiki, and it no longer states that he was a white supremacist. Well, that's interesting because I made a huge point of that in my Donner paper article, and I didn't, I didn't uh, cut him out back then. Now I'm taking the time to do it to show for when they want to change it. 
his story has been scrubbed yet again because one of because one of my papers. You're welcome. If you tell me he was also an American explorer and at least had that going for him, Wiki then states, quote, he is best remembered as the developer of Hastings Cutoff, a claimed shortcut to California across what is now the state of Utah, a factor in the Donner Party disaster of 1846. Take a mental note of that. Hastings made a name for himself giving crappy roadside directions to cannibals. Hastings. Hastings, the name sounds familiar, doesn't it? Where have we heard that before? Well, Reed Hastings is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Netflix. Are they related? I checked. Lansford and Reed are kissing cousins. But that is only the tip of the iceberg. You see, Lansford and Reed Hastings. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy who, you know, Agent Hastings who gave the bad directions. He was leaving post-it notes in the desert, leaving bad directions, almost like Willie E. Coyote with the Roadrunner. Lansford and Reed Hastings, though nearly two centuries removed, aren't, aren't any old ordinary Hastings. No, they derive from the Royal House of Hastings. And there's a whole, uh, even Wikipedia has an article on that, on connecting them to the Royal House of Hastings. Even more illustrious than their noble birthright is the fact that their family tree their family tree includes the earl of huntington line also as true royals they're related to king john that's only slightly confusing since king john was the villain in robin hood and the very first earl of huntington is often believed though you know it's considered by some to to be robin hood with that little tidbit of information, let's look at some notable Americans related to the Hastings family tree, shall we? The long list includes inventors, governors, educators, university presidents, congressmen, justices of the Supreme Court, and reforming ministers of the Unitarian Church. Basically, the entire Luciferian system, which, thanks to papers such as this, will never employ me ever again. And here's a few to boot. Le, uh, Lemuel Hastings Arnold, as you can see there, 1792 to 1852, was the 12th governor of the state of Rhode Island and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And I'm, I'm, I just want to remind you as I go through these, these are all directly related genealogy, like all cousins. They're all, all related in a very short period of time. But then we have James R. Mead, 1836-1910, uh, a founder of Wichita, Kansas, and state legis legislator. Lastly, Eli uh, Akim Hastings Moore was a U.S. representative from Ohio, though I'm only just getting started. Then we see this guy here, Jarrett, Jarrett Parmel Judd. I found this guy really fascinating. The, the Hastings have a long history in the Hawaiian Islands, though, they're, though there they are the Judd branch of the family. Jarrett Parmel Judd, 1803-1873, was a physician and missionary arriving to the kingdom of Hawaii in 1827, though they were then known as the Sandwich Islands. He later renounced his American citizenship in order to become a quote-unquote trusted advisor and cabinet member to King uh, Kamiha, uh, Miha, Kamiha Miha III. Quite the advancement for your poor and lowly missionary. Take a note of that. Now, this really occurred to me as I was writing this that, you know, I grew up in a church environment where they were really um, 
glorifying the 1800s, this huge missionary movement where they were sending missionaries all, you know, all over the world to, to China, to the, the Orient, to, to Pacific Islands, to, you know, Papua New Guinea, all, all through Asia, all, you know, South America, Africa, everywhere, right? All these colonial societies. And it, it occurred to me, and we're going to go through this, looking at this, that these guys, I, th I think a lot of agents, uh, government agents, were masquerading as missionaries. They were there because they could get into the country and then they would uh, get cozy with the, the monarchy and they would then, of course, you know, do their little takeovers. Now, not to say that there were not legitimate missionaries in the 1800s, I believe there were. I'm just saying that a lot of them were, you know, they were spooks. And Jared Judd had two sons and they were Colonel Charles Hastings Judd and Albert Francis Judd Hastings was the middle uh, name of the first, and he became a full-fledged colonel, telling us that Garrett hadn't forgotten his royal roots after all. Colonel of what exactly? Charles Hastings Judd served as chamberlain and colonel of the military staff of King Kalakua. King Kalakua. Already Kalakua is sounding very much like a puppet. And as we know, Kalakua was the last king of Hawaii. So there you go. So basically, these the Judd family came in as advisors, and they basically they ended the they, they helped direct the end of the kingship. They helped colonize uh, the Pacific and prepare for the inevitable. This makes sibling Albert Francis Judd all the more interesting. He was a judge of the Kingdom of Hawaii, serving as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. If big titles don't impress you, it's the little details that count. Wikipedia describes his role with the following opening statement. He was a stabilizing influence throughout the turbulent overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii in 1893. Provisional Government of, of Hawaii, Republic of Hawaii, and finally, formation of the Territory of, of Hawaii in 1898. And then here's my edit. You see it happened again, my FBI, my FBI agent, went all out and completely scrubbed the sentence I was quoting from. When I went back to take a picture for my second edition, the entire article had changed. Thanks a lot, Carl Winslow. If we're being honest, though, I know why he is doing it. My FBI agent. He is a great admirer of my work and wants me to up my game. Well, back to the regularly scheduled program then. This current paper is all about rabbit trails. Moving forward, we shall find a few connections between the House of the Hastings and the World Fairs. And here's the first. Sanford B. Dole, yeah, the pineapple guy, is reportedly responsible for declaring Hawaii an independent republic. Once again, Wikipedia states, spurred by the nationalism aroused by the Spanish-American War, the United States annexed Hawaii in 1898 at the urging of President William McKinley. Hawaii was made a territory in 1900 and Dole became its first governor. Another edit, as you can see, not even close, my quote with what I uh, uh, cut out there with Wikipedia. Carl Winslow has been working the weekends, apparently. The Spanish-American War is now sounding a lot like the Mexican-American War. And guess who followed Dole but Albert Francis Judd? Both were missionary kids. Is that a coincidence? Maybe, probably not. How many of the imperialists and Victorian-era missionaries tasked with fulfilling the Great Commission do you suppose were in actuality spooks? Of course, you know, working for the 
uh, governments as agents of the government, but not letting anybody know about it. I don't know about you, but I'm sensing a clearer understanding of how denominations were structuring church money. They were in actuality sending off special interest groups. Now we see here George Robert Carter, also from the, these, everybody here is from the Royal House of Hastings, was the second territorial governor of Hawaii, also related to the Hastings. But, it's, but it is Lawrence McCauley Judd, and you can see his birth and death date there, 1887 to 1968, who I want to spend a little time with. Lawrence McCauley Judd was a politician of the territory of Hawaii, serving as the seventh territorial governor. Well, here's something interesting and entirely, entirely related that I learned along the way. After Grace Hubbard uh, Fortescue and her daughter, Pearl Harbor Navy wife, Thalia Macy, were convicted of manslaughter and the death of prizefighter Kosef Kahawai, her 1932, the, the Macy trial, uh, it was pretty popular back then, her 1932 trial became the focus of worldwide press coverage something called the Macy Affair. It, it, it was almost like the, uh, the, the O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s, uh, but back in the 30s. It also put Pearl Harbor on the map 10 years before the fact. There is Gracie Hubbard and her daughter, Thalia Macy, with the Navy husband. What are they doing? Reading important paperwork, obviously, for the camera guy. Try not to forget that the media isn't concerned with real murders and the resulting murder trials. It is the job of the military industrial complex to create news and then invest in their own stories. And this has been going on for centuries, not just years or decades, but a very long time. The world is a stage and we're expected to take the bait so as to be reeled into a never ending gauntlet of psychodramatic episodes. Case in point, Grace Hubbard was the niece of Alexander Graham Bell. Small world, as if that's as if that's inconvenient. She was also the granddaughter of Gardiner Green Hubbard, the first president of the National Geographic Society. Ridiculous. They're all members of the same club. Fortescue furthermore hired defense attorney Clarence Darrow. Oh, come on. This is the same guy who was brought into the Scopes Monkey Trial to combat William Jennings Bryan, all staged. The, the Scopes Monkey Trial was all staged. You will tell me that Daryl lost the Scopes Monkey Trial. That's because it was a conquer and divide operation. Daryl lost the Macy Trial too. But here's where it gets really good. Macy's sentence of 10 years in prison was whittled down to one solitary hour while visiting Lawrence McCauley Judd. There we are with the Judds again. And the governor's chambers at uh, Iolani Palace. It was all a hoax, hoax hoax. They let her off, probably just to screw with everyone caught up in the drama, and the Judd branch of the Hastings family tree was behind it all. Next on the Earl of Huntington line, we have everybody's favorite hot for teacher nurse, little Miss Agent Dorothea Dix, born 1802, died 1887. Why am I not including a picture of her? I probably will. Until then, enjoy her handiwork. Dix was assigned the role of creating America's first generation mental institutions. And so I will ask, what do those look like to you? Repurpose buildings if you want my take on it. 
So many buildings needing repurposed for one thing or another, so as to make the timeline and the Illuminati history books work. And with all the emerging cases of naughty, which is my way of saying people sticking their noses where it doesn't belong, looks like insane asylums it is. Milwaukee in particular had a had no shortage of re-education camps. Oh, excuse me, mental institutions, quote unquote, because they are places of learning for the sick, you know. Here we see Sanctuary Woods as was proposed to look then, and as it currently stands now, only a staircase remains, incredible. They built a luxury resort in 1850 to house the influx of mentally deranged, only to be torn down again after their statement was made. During the American Civil War, Dorothea served as a superintendent of army nurses. I have included a picture of Agent Dix giving two men a proper dosage of medicine, because as you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Hey, I have a thought. What if the Civil War was a staged hoax and our controllers were sick and sadistic enough to carve up the fellows who were deemed too careless with their talk? I wouldn't, pu I wouldn't push it past them because loose lips sink ship as ships, as you know. Well, it's just a thought. But let me ask you something. Does Dix really look like a 60-something-year-old woman in that photo? She was born in 1802. The Civil War started in 1861. I'm sorry, that's nobody's grandma. She looks 30, probably even has a date lined up in a couple of hours with, with, uh, with a lieutenant colonel. Maybe even a second lieutenant if she's feeling especially feisty and wants to rock the cradle. That is, after she lops off the arms and legs of another 100 men, all in a day's work. Now we come across uh, here Theodore Parker, 1810 to 1860. Looks like the Royal House of Hastings had many talents, theosophy being one of them, which just so happens to be what Theodore Parker was, a card-carrying theosophist. And uh, I've pointed out many times that my conclusions is that all the original mainstream theosophists, they were all spooks, every single one of them. And here's what we gleaned from Wikipedia. Theodore Parker was an American transcendentalist and reforming minister of the Unitarian Church, a reformer and abolitionist. His words and popular quotations would later inspire speeches by Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Now, this might actually be a mistake. I might have to go back. I think I meant to write uh, uh, transcendentalist, which I pointed out that they are as well. Uh, it says theosophist, it does not say theosophist. I need to go back and edit that. Uh, but he was a first century, a first generation transcendentalist. And then here's my edit. Well, 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 Carl Winslow didn't scrub all of my quotations after all. Maybe because I, <laughs> maybe because I called him a theosophist. Because Wiki and my quote are still identical. Most have, most have gotten distracted uh, or discarded. Or he figured nobody would believe me when I reminded the reader that blood is thicker than water. And the Rothschild owned, uh, like MLKJ, uh, like to quote from their own. If I haven't already, I should probably let you in on the news. The transcendentalists were spooks. Then again, so were the abolitionists. Parker was in deep with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Amos Bronson Alcott, and Henry, Henry David Thoreau. All of them, I believe, were spooks. All of them working for, for the agenda. Agent Emerson was effectively launched at the first Boston Masonic Temple in 1835. 
and he lectured there repeatedly for many years. So there you go. What does that tell you? Shepherd, shepherd of the sheep, indeed. If and keep in mind that these uh, transcendentalists, they were like all church pastors. If Emerson, Thoreau, and their elk found a captive audience, it's because the spook community made it so. That's how the world works, you know. Spooks tell you, sell you on spooks and make it seem like it was your idea in the first place to, to follow their teachings. Theodore Parker devoted himself to this idea. I'm not going to read this whole paragraph here. There's no way my eyes will take that tonight. You need a magnifying glass for that thing. Some of the paragraphs in Parker's resume are loaded guns of information. It's difficult not sharing the entire article, but this juicy snippet will have to do. Read it and weep. Parker gradually introduced transcendentalist ideas into his sermons. So he was a pastor leading a church. He, temper he tempered his radicalism with diplomacy and discretion, however. And this is a quote from him. I preach abundant heresies, he wrote to a friend. And they all go down for the listeners do not know how heretical they are. We have already seen cosplay in action with the Judd wing of the Hastings. Intel agents dressed up like missionaries. Well, the Theosophists did the same. I don't know why I just wrote Theosophists there. It's just a transcendentalist. But uh, Theosophists were, you know, they were outside of Christianity. So apologize for that. The transcendentalists. They played make-believe as pulpit pastors, laboring to promote the divine in the world around them as well as within, while simultaneously casting doubt upon Yahuwah's testimony as a divine being. How many churches do you suspect these... Uh, these transcendentalist vermin infiltrated. I almost wonder if that was like, like some sort of autocorrect or something. I don't know why I kept writing that. All right, well, moving on. Here's an interesting member from the Royal House of Hastings, Susanna Willard Johnson. Uh, she was born somewhere in 1729 to 30 to 1810. She was captured with her family during an Indian raid on Charlestown, New Hampshire. That wouldn't be Charlestown, South Carolina. This is New Hampshire in August, 1754. This was undoubtedly done in order to help fuel propaganda for the French and Indian War, probably as a staged hoax or a false flag attack. It also helped to launch the captivity narrative genre. Though not the first, her account was the most widely analyzed and read. If you're asking why that is, it's because Intel communities like to invest in their own Obviously, the capture and rescue of Jemima, that's a fun name, like Aunt, like Aunt Jemima, Jemima Boone, was likely a fake storyline too. In July of 1776, grand timing, Daniel Boone rides in like a punk and takes his daughter back from Cherokee Shawnee Raiders. How they never made this into a movie? As one captor was shot, Jemima yells, that's father's gun. Save it for the movie, kid which apparently they never made, to my knowledge. Much like Susanna Wheeler Johnson's episode, the Boone event likely helped motivate colonists to enter the revolution. And James Cooper uh, later created a fictionalized version of the episode in his 1826 novel, The Last of the Mohegans, because I keep telling you this, spooks like to invest in their own. Speaking of which, we find yet another kidnapping story in the Royal House of Hastings because dusting off an old script is a favorite tactic of the Intel communities. And Lindbergh, uh, 1906 through 2001, once again of the Earl of Huntington's, married Charles, Charles Lindbergh, and he was a spook. Just in case you're wondering, the Lindbergh kid, 
kidnapping was a media hoax. Moving on, uh, Frederick Coolidge of the Coolidge family was also of the Royal House of Hastings, becoming a U.S. representative from Massachusetts and the father of United States Senator Marcus Coolidge. Both Frederick and Marcus brings us back to President Calvin Coolidge and once again to every other United States president through the one and only King John. I stumbled upon a search in Paul Hastings, founder of Paul Hastings, uh, Janofsky and Walker LLP. His firm serves a diverse client base that includes many of the top financial institutions and Fortune 500 companies. Talk about having your paws in the cookie jar. Was the Judwing even this influential? With everything we've so far learned, that may indeed be an alphabet agency front for all I know. Next, I found two architects in the Hastings family and wasn't disappointed. Thomas Hastings designed the Tower of Jewels and Fountain of Energy for the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. Plant a red flag on that one. Kirkland Cutter, I have written about. He was, uh, if you remember my whole Chicago paper, he was also an architect designing the Idaho building for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which you can read about here in the Chicago World Fair. And my conclusion is thus. The 1893 World Fair in Chicago introduced America to the ancient millennial kingdom city of Chilaga because essentially nobody on the, on the roster built it. They could only invite Americans to watch them claim to build it and then quite literally destroy it. The irony here is that Kirkland Cutter's design looks to be one of the very few buildings that was actually slapped together for the fair. Either way, he was in on it. I mean, it's a, it's a log cabin he built. Clearly not ancient. After learning that the House of Hastings had two architects directly involved in the World Fair psyops, I then discovered that the family invested prominently in railroads. This is not at all surprising and in fact expected since the railroads likely already existed long before they uh, before they claimed to have built them and the very reason for agent Lansford Hastings bad directions. Frederick H. Billings was president of the Northern Pacific Railroad. There's a doozy. Paul Party Hastings was a prominent executive of the Achisan, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. Daniel Willard has a city named after him and was an executive of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad from 1910 to 1941. For the record, the B&O is my favorite Monopoly railroad. You just got to love it, the B&O. Sounds like, I guess, like kind of like B.O., really. Our final member of the Royal House of Hastings is the one and only Carol Lombard, a.k.a. Jane Alice Peters, who actually uh, Lucille Ball was friends with her. She talked about her. If you've ever wondered how Carol Lombard managed to become the highest paid actor, or I should say actress, in Hollywood in the 1930s, now you have been given a good indicator. She may have been a pretty face, but being an Earl of Huntington, like Anne, Mar uh, like Anne Lindbergh, probably helped her pedigree. As an added bonus, she married Clark Gable. And of course, these people all marry within royalty. They don't call them Hollywood royalty for nothing. It kind of makes you wonder about the plane crash that supposedly ended her life. The year was 1942. America had just entered the Second World War. Lombard was 33 years old. According to Wiki, the cause of the crash was determined to be linked to the pilot and crew's inability to properly navigate over the mountains surrounding Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. That's probably it. The Hastings have a habit of initiating wars with hoax kidnappings or deaths, but that's 
probably none of my business. I don't want to end up in one of uh, Dorothea Dix's institutions. You notice how celebrities never seem to die from roller coasters, tall ladders, lightning, uh, lightning strikes, bee stings, shark or hippo attacks, or fireworks. I checked. They're all more likely than dying in an airplane. Even death from falling out of bed is more likely. So few people die in a plane crash that the odds are barely calculable. That's how few people end up falling out of the sky. And yet, Hollywood royalty makes it a dirty habit like the casting couch. Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, Ricky Nelson, Otis Redding, Rocky Marciano, Glenn Miller, died about the same time, Glenn Miller, James Horner, a great uh, composer, ever heard his work, David Angel, uh, Alia, all died in plane crashes. And I've yet to deal with the dozens upon dozens of politicians, rulers, sports stars, astronauts, and the like who met the same fate falling out of the sky. I will leave it up to you to theorize or make sense of that. But like Kobe's helicopter crash, another probable which appears to have kicked off COVID-1984, it does not surprise me that Lombard went down with her mother, Bess Peters. It's for the exact same reason that Carolyn uh, Bessett Kennedy went down with her sister, Lauren Bessett. Why not take a loved one with you while living the rest of your life in solitude? This concludes our first lesson in the Donna Reed Party narrative. Never veer to the left nor to the right of the narrative. Also, the interstate. Your slave masters have provided every gas station, hotel, and coffee diner for your convenience. Coffee sounds really good right about now. Give me a second, and I'll be on it. They have provided them all at the following exit for your convenience. If you need an added thrill, then keep to the fast lane. And if you do wander off beyond the horizon, just know there's electric fences or men with guns to greet you, and absolutely nothing interesting to see beyond those two hills over there. I barely dug into the Earl of Huntington's, and we haven't even touched upon the European dynasty of this family. With such an easily accessed list, you, can, you too can hunt these names down on the internet. I can only suspect that many key agents are scrubbed from nobility. Now, considering everyone we've looked at, I admit, Lansford Hastings, keep in mind, again, this is the guy who handed him the bad map received the crappiest job of them all. He's the guy who went down in history as giving out the sort of directions with, which led to cannibalism. I mean, Carol Lombard, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, Agent Hastings' work was not yet done. But before we get to that, I find it interesting that he not only served as a captain in the California Battalion during the Mexican War, he was also a delegate to the 1849 California Constitutional Convention. He's part of the same MMM crowd. If you recall my Gold Rush hoax paper, the convention was a Freemason affair. Who would possibly want to hire Lansford Hastings for something like that? Oh, that's right. Hastings is one of the boys. After securing California for the Union, he then moved his family to Yuma, Arizona, and served as a postmaster and territorial judge. Perhaps I will look further into that sometime. We next find him traveling to Richmond, Virginia in 1864 for a private audience with Confederate, Confederate President Jefferson Davis. 
perhaps I'm missing something here, but that's kind of a big deal for a guy who sells crappy maps in the desert. The plan, we are told, was to separate California from the Union. Keep in mind, this is 1864. The, the Civil War would be the war would be over with the Abraham Lincoln assassination hoax in April of 65, so within one year or less. But apparently at one point during the war, this was in the stack of cards. They were going to extend the franchise with a California spinoff. It's kind of like the original draft to Back to the Future 2, where writer Bob Gale had Marty McFly traveling back to 1969 rather than 1955. Originally, Darth Vader was never intended to be Luke Skywalker's father in The Empire Strikes Back or Leia's sister, Rachel the Jedi. Script changes do happen. It's all a part of the creative process. Apparently, though, this was it. They were going to do a sequel to the Civil War, uh, which they were going to start a new confederacy in the state of California. That's fascinating considering that it's just all a psyop, right? It, San Francisco, Los Angeles, a whole California scene, and you have an one of the original players in the PSYOP, Hastings, meeting to, to ferment those plans. The unused Confederate California plot line was to be called the Hastings plot, LOL, I kid you not. So there's the Hastings cutoff, this is the Hastings plot. Kind of, kind of like Hastings cutoff, adorable. Actually, Hastings' plot was technically rebranded. Agent Hastings began colonizing Confederates in, wait for it, Brazil. In 1867, he even wrote a book about it, The Immigrant's Guide to Brazil. Had the corporate states of America decided to milk this commercial property, would it have ended like the Alamo false flag event or the Donner Party or the Donner Reed Party? We shall never know. It's a script which would once again be dusted off the shelf some 70 years later, this time for the Nazis. All right, speaking of that uh, coffee stop, we're on page 25 if you need caught up. We're on part two. I think we're doing okay on time. Or maybe not. Part two, what is this called? Reed, Graves, and Pike, more family relations. So now we'll be looking at other people, uh, royal families in the Donner Party, how they're all in on it together and then we'll be the last two sections we'll be dealing on the actual claims of cannibalism the story we are given is that james fraser reed quarreled with tea master john snyder somewhere along the humboldt river after snyder began beating his ox with a whip handle the days were hot tempers short and winter was soon upon them it was october 6 1846 when reed intervened snyder slashed him across the forehead with the butt of his whip Reed drew a knife. Within half an hour, perhaps even 15 minutes, the young man was dead. Most members of the Donner Reed party had become so vehemently, ve they had become so opposed, vehemently opposed to their co-founder of uh, James Reed, that they proposed a death by hanging. Louis Kessieberg offered his own wagon as a hanging plank. Reed's wife, Margaret, pleaded that they let her husband live. The Donners finally agreed to banish him. James Reed initially refused, but eventually rode ahead. And this is how he gets to Sacramento, some 400 miles over the Sierra Nevada seeking supplies. The rest is history. We then find Reed emerging at Sutter's Fort, Sacramento on October 26, some three weeks later, and just ahead of the snow. We are told he pleaded with Colonel John C. Fremont for men with the hopes of forming a search party, but Fremont's per, uh, personnel were occupied at, the, at that precise moment 
conquering Santa Barbara because a war was currently being waged. Yeah, the, the Donna Reed party started in the direction of a war zone in a foreign country currently occupied by another occupier, battle lines which span hundreds and thousands of miles. That would almost be like, like let's uh, start a, a caravan and um, go start a new life in Iraq or Afghanistan while America's over there fighting. It's kind of like that. The Mexican-American War began, began on April 25th, 1846. The Donner Party did not set out for Independence, Missouri until May 12th. So the war had started. And they're like, this is, a, this is a good idea. Let's go out to a war zone. Even from the propaganda standpoint of official history, the establishment of California can barely hide the fact that it was a triple M operation, Mormon, Mason, and military. Well, the Donner Party was likewise no exception to the rule. Mormons and Masons filled their ranks, also American royalty. I will assume you've already seen some of my findings in the genealogy of Lansford Hastings, which we just went over, the man who was handing out pamphlets in the desert, and know he has all the birthmarks of a spook, but not just any spook. Hastings derives from the Royal House of Hastings, and even more importantly, the Earl of Huntington. So we're taking one long, seemingly endless line, we're talking one long, Seemingly, seemingly endless line of royal spooks. You know what happens when I stumble? I got to take another drink. After taking Mr. Toad's wild ride through the Earl of Huntington dynasty, I decided to turn my attention upon James Fraser Reed, co-founder of the Donna Reed hoax, and wasn't disappointed. James Fraser Reed was born on 11-14-1800 in County Armagh, Ireland. The bad news is that his family lineage is scrubbed. Regardless, here's something I noticed along the way. Reed was a Freemason, but not just any Freemason. From what I've been able to glean throughout my various reconnaissance missions in the Matrix, Freemasons love to point out that James Reed was, in fact, a card-carrying Freemason. Wink, wink. They're very proud of that fact. I take that to mean Freemasons are proud of the bloke's work. What else did he accomplish other than taking part in the road trip from hell? We aren't told. Reed personally made it known that he was of noble Polish extraction, royal blood, uh, Reed, no, Reed Noski being his original family name. That is dandy and all, but I have yet to find one historian who has met anything for his efforts other than speed bumps, potholes, and dead ends. The most I was able to glean officially was that his family chose exile rather than life under the rule of the Tsar of Russia. In a world where nothing is, a, is as it seems, take that at, fa at face value. Moving on. The other thing you'll want to notice is that Fraser is, is his name. His father's name was Fraser Reed, though oddly enough, his mother was a Fraser, huh? It is assumed that his mother and father were related, but personally, I can't help but wonder if his father is a ghost. Anyhow, the clan Fraser began in Scotland when Simon Fraser arrived from French Normandy in about 1160. Some five generations later, another Simon Fraser volleyed back and forth, fighting for Robert the Bruce, and then for Edward the First of England. Which side, uh, which side of the William Wallace choo-choo was this guy on exactly, according to history? So he's going back and forth, fighting for Robert the Bruce and then Edward the First, right? It's like, you what are you a double, a triple agent? What's going on with this? According to history, his land was snatched and then returned to him, rinse and repeat, until it was finally destroyed, and he was executed shortly after William Wallace in 1306. 
Both heads ended up on a pole on Tower Bridge. Uh, apparently, this guy didn't make it into the, uh, I don't think he made it into the Braveheart movie. I'd have to check. Simon's cousin was Alexander Fraser of, of Cowie, Bruce's personal chamberlain. Alexander Fraser married Bruce's sister, Mary, small world. His younger brother was another Sir Simon Fraser, for whom the chiefs of the clan Fraser of Lovett are descended. So the Frasers became a Bruce. Incidentally, Robert the Bruce played a crucial role in the Knights Templar Friday the 13th fiasco, what I believe to be another hoax. That's something I have covered in this paper. I hear you can read The Last Templar, and I went over that a few months ago as well. So many tangled webs. Historians all seem to agree that James Fraser Reed arrived in America with his pockets filled. Reed was well-financed. That's, that's what they don't, they don't fill that in for you. He was well-financed from somebody. And as late as the spring of 1846, we find Reed in correspondence with another Fraser, a certain William Fraser, the son of Irish immigrant James Anderson Fraser and Martha Rankin. At the time, William Fraser was in the Virginia State Legislature serving in both the House of Delegates and the Senate. On James Fraser Reed's wiki page, we are told that Reed and Abraham Lincoln served together in the Black Hawk War of 1832, small world. Stephen A. Douglas was a member of his lodge, wink, wink. We are also told and expected to believe that Reed was ill-prepared to deal with the quote-unquote hostile Indians on his journey, despite being a war veteran, but more on that in a moment. One of Reed's chief sources was the very mysterious James M. Maxey, a supply store owner in Independence, Missouri. I checked. Maxey was a Freemason. Independence was the eastern terminal for Santa Fe and Oregon Trail departures. Together, they poured over maps of John C. Fremont's recent government-sponsored 1842 and 43 expeditions, which had only recently been published by Congress and with much fanfare in 1845. Mm -hmm. This is the same Fremont whom Reed met up with at Sutter's Fort. In 1856, Fremont would become the first Republican candidate for U.S. president. Again, small world and getting smaller by the minute. Reed then spent the rest of his winter in San Jose, just south of San Francisco. Though we are told he was attempting to spread stories as to the Donner Party's dreadful condition, and I have no reason to doubt it that he was spreading these stories, I find it curious that Reed later attempted to make San Jose the capital of the new California state. So Reed here, who, you know, the, it's the Donner Party, it's really technically the Donner-Reed Party. Like this guy was another mover and shaker of the creation of California. He just so happened to be in the, the, the cannibal party. What are the odds? Apparently in 1843, John C. Fremont's experienced a winter of such deep snow uh, along the, the Truckee River that he and his men resorted to eating mule and dog for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Nobody died, except for the dogs. In other news, Thomas Hart Benton was a United States senator for, from Missouri and a Freemason. Both Benton and Reed appeared to be highly respected and ranked and more than likely corresponded with each other. Several years earlier, Benton invited John C. Fremont to his Washington home. See, they're all connected. It is there where Fremont met Benton's 16-year-old daughter, Jessie Benton. The two eloped. Though Benton was reportedly furious at their marriage, he ultimately became Fremont's financier. This is important to the California narrative 
since Benton was a powerful chairman of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs. Now, getting back to the ox beating incident that we started out with on part two with John Snyder. Reed's altercation with Snyder was first chronicled in 1849 by newspaper man Jesse Quinn Thornton, who I'll bring up at the end of this paper. The title of his book was Oregon and California in 1848, and he probably had good reason for writing about it. Though Thornton had initially started out in Independence, Missouri, with members of the Donna Reed Party, his wagon train did not follow the strange and obscure post-it notes left behind the desert by a certain Lansford Hastings, which led the Donners to destruction. Thornton's party also chose to veer off course on another path called the Applegate Trail, named for brothers Jesse and Lindsay Applegate. They arrived safely at Sutter's Fort. According to Thornton's telling, Reed drew a knife without attempting to use it. Snyder told him he'd whip him anyhow and gave Reed a severe blow upon the head. Reed then, quote, cut a little below the collarbone, cutting off the first rib and driving the knife through the left lung, unquote. Snyder turned his bullwhip upon Margaret Reed's head, managing two more blows upon James Fraser Reed before finally falling to his knees. In 1877, survivor William C. Graves, whose wagon John Snyder was driving, had dramatically escalated the incident in his own memoir to read. Now, um, what you're going to start seeing here is that all these crisis actors, all these people, they all have different, you know, they all kind of throw their own spin on the story, right, to, to sell their books and their stories to the newspapers. Reed started toward him and jumping over the wagon tongue said, you are a damned liar and I'll cut your heart out. Snyder pulled his clothes open on his breast and said, cut away. So John Snyder just rips open his shirt and says, like, cut my heart. Reed ran to him and stuck a large six inch butcher's knife into his heart and cut off two ribs because you should, the lesson there is you should be careful what you uh, wish for. You tell someone to cut your heart out, they might just do it. Snyder then turned the butt end of his whip stock and struck him three times, but missed him the third and hit Mrs. Reed, who had in the meantime got hold of her husband. In every story, Mrs. Reed's head gets hit with the bullwhip. I find that kind of interesting, but always in different, in different ways. It's always a different way that she gets hit. LOL, that's precisely what we should come to expect of crisis actors. A journalist looks for a story, and the actor is most willing to reenact the incident by way of improv, often adding his own flourishes for effect. Steve McQueen knew how to steal a scene in the testosterone-heavy The Magnificent Seven by thumbing around with his hat in the background, even while standing, even while standing in the background. It's how eyes are pulled from uh, Bronson and Coburn and... Uh, and Yul Brynner, all the different actors in there. Likewise, the Donner Party has no shortage of embellishments. It is only with the publication of butterfly farmer Charles Fayette McLashen's 1879 book, History of the Donner Party, that writers, uh, that writers and Donner Party survivors alike dutifully identified Gravely Ford as the fight and burial location of John Snyder. And yet, despite a myriad of of trail researchers and Donner Party aficionados in the following decades, including an expedition to Gravely Ford by searching Captain Charles E. Davis in 1929, going so far as to offer his own burial marker, no proof has ever been found 
of John Snyder being buried there. It, not, no grave, no bones, nothing. And why is that, do you suppose? They've done a lot of work there. Trying, I mean, people who really truly believe the narrative who are trying to find his bones. Fun with facts. Jesse Quinn Thornton was personally acquainted with Senators Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, whom we have already encountered, and Stephen Douglas, the man who ran against Lincoln in 1860 and lost. Thornton went on to become a judge, among other roles, but then this one goes out to all my Oregon friends. The phrase, she flies with her own rings, or Alice Velat's pro, uh, propria in Latin, was written by Jesse Quinn Thornton for Oregon's territorial seal and has since become the official state model. So it's the Donner Party uh, mythology lives on today in the state of Oregon. After James Fraser Reed's departure on horseback, everyone remaining in the Donner Party was then instructed to walk, including a 70-year-old man whose feet had split open from swelling, that I can believe. Uh, we know him only as Mr. Hardcoop, a Belgian. Louis Kesseberg wanted him removed from his wagon in order to lighten the load and so told him to get out and walk or die, which is apparently what happened. Not surprisingly, the old man managed both. He walked and then he died. He disappeared after resting, uh, resting by the stream and was never seen again. By now, the Paiutes Indians had relieved the daughters of 100 oxen cattle and much of their supplies according to the official narrative though we know that you know most of these uh, uh, well I, I i won't say most but a great deal of these raids were you know false flag attacks and it was actually mormons or government agents coming in and doing stuff and then passing it off like the the natives were in fact doing it and they weren't the Paiute were blamed for Mr. Hardcoop's fate, but you and I both know if savage Indians wanted them dead, the Donners never would have lived to see snowfall. Case in point, at about the same time, a Donner Party member who was simply identified to us as Wolf, uh, Wolfinger, Wolfinger, I guess, or Wolfinger, one of the two, stopped to fix his wagon. Two men likewise identified as Augustus Spitzer and Joseph Reinhardt stayed behind to help, but later returned without him. They initially reported that Indians had come down out of the hills and killed Wolfinger, but Reinhardt later confessed to having murdered him while hunkering down at the Alder Creek camp for the winter with the Donners. Then again, Jacob and George Donner died that winter, as did Spitzer and Reinhardt. So who told of his confession? The, the Donner children? More improv. And stranger still, despite the numerous historians who've investigated the Donna Reed Party incident over nearly two centuries now, Augustus Spitzer and Joseph Reinhardt's identities have never been uncovered. They may be ghosts, meaning they you know, never existed. I, I actually think that probably just about everyone who they claim died, probably all ghosts. I decided to look into John Snyder, the man whom Reed stuck with a knife, but his birth is unknown. His parents are unknown. Very little is known of John Snyder, except that somebody who went by the name served as driver for the graves only to be buried in an unmarked grave. Isn't that funny? He was a driver for the graves and he was in an unmarked grave. I just caught that. I tried searching any available genealogy on Snyder and it appears as though he's completely scrubbed or he too never existed at all. I don't really know. So Snyder was a wash 
But the Graves family did not disappoint. We see Franklin Ward Graves, a, a descendant, was the child of Zenas Graves and a woman named Hannah. Well, Wikitree has completely scrubbed Hannah's date of birth and made a name. She's probably important. Try to follow along anyways. And you could, in your spare time, you could follow that to Wikilink, uh, Wikitree and follow. Zenas, however, had another wife and Abigail Ward. Their union produced a daughter named Sarah Graves. Sarah became a Coolidge. Abigail Ward has Esther Franklin listed for a mother. So to clarify, Franklin Ward Graves' half-sister was undoubtedly a Franklin, but also became a Coolidge, as in Benjamin Franklin and the president Coolidge. His stepmother, Abigail Ward, is yet another Jim. She links the Graves family to American governors and statesmen and a not-so-distant relative in the decades to come, Julia Ward Howe. Julia Ward Howe was a Unitarian and abolitionist who wrote Battle Hymn of the Republic after visiting Abraham Lincoln in the White House in November of 1861 and being so inspired by him. We're told she was so inspired by Lincoln, she wrote it, though even that inspiration ran only so deep as her ability to unashamedly rip off the tune to John Brown's body. She took this, a pre-existent song and just changed some of the lyrics around. It is through Julia Ward Howe that I was able to crack open the oyster shell because she is quite a pearl. Though I was only capable of finding two Magna Carta surities in her lineage, 19th great-grandfather William Mallet and 20th great-grandfather William D. Huntingfield, those are Magna Carta people, those two men link her directly to the typical royals. 24th great-grandfather William the Conqueror, uh, we see King Robert I, Alfred the Great, and Charlemagne all in there. Uh, 32nd great-grandfather Charlemagne. From there, her list of cousins found out to include the Vanderbilts, the, Rocker, the uh, Rockefellers, the Beach Boys, Queen Elizabeth II, and too many U.S. presidents to count, or else it would be a whole paper just on their lineage on the graves. She's part of that family, as are the graves. Turning now to, the, to Franklin's father, Zenas Graves was the son of John Graves and Mary Bush Graves. Once again, Mary Bush has been scrubbed. Why am I not surprised? Need I remind you that the Bush family is perhaps the most powerful dynasty in American history? My guess is we can place Mary Bush somewhere in the whereabouts of Richard Bush, 1696-1732, the fifth great-grandfather of CIA director and president Timberwolf, though most simply know him as George H.W. Bush. And if so, this would directly link Franklin Ward Graves to Mayflower passengers John Howland and Elizabeth Tilly, Plymouth Colony Governor Thomas Hinckley, as well as John Ralph and Pocahontas. While Bill Hickok, Douglas MacArthur, as well as John MacArthur and Louisa May Alcott are all linked to the Bush clan by way of blood, as well as a host of others, far too many to name. Mary Parker is too. You may recognize Mary Parker as the woman tried and hung during the Salem witch uh, trial hoax. The Bush family has a long history of spiritual and material agents. Though spooks aren't really your thing, then let's put it in a slightly different term. Franklin Ward Graves was American royalty, right? So the Graves family were the main uh, families of the Donner Party royalty. Catching up. Snyder is murdered. Reed and three other guys right off. Paiute Indians are ruining everything. An old man goes by the name of Mr. Hardcoop is left to die in the desert. Paiute Indians are further blamed for the death of somebody named uh, Wolfinger or Wolfinger. I haven't decided which yet. And the Sierra Nevadas haven't even been reached yet. 
Did I mention his mother-in-law died too? Hopefully I haven't left anyone out. Who is next on our death list? Well, the first of winter's snowfall litters the ground while William Montgomery Pike is buried in Truckee Canyon. Nice touch. The date is October 30th, Devil's Night, Mischief Night, of Mischief Night, though another popular name is Cabbage Nights. The name apparently originates among young women and couples in Scotland and Ireland who would pull up cabbages the evening before Halloween to divide the romantic future. After the cabbage foretold their fate, the ceremony would continue by throwing the plucked cabbages, some of them rotten at random houses. Call it what you will, it's the day before Halloween and mischief is afoot. Just on a side note here, I'm going to be updating my, my paper on the, the children of the mud flood. When I talk about the cabbage, the cabbage patch, because this is really fascinating. And the, 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 the way that cabbages are used, they're plucked up to uh, the tell fortune. Speaking of which, George Donner will badly injure himself on Halloween while fixing a broken wagon axle. The, snow, uh, the snowfall, which I presume has continued accumulating since the moment of Pike's burial, will reach several feet in depth before nightfall. George and Jacob Donner decide to lag behind while the others move on ahead. Within one week and only 150 miles removed from Sutter's Fort, the Donner party will make the decision to hunker down for the winter. Donner's injury will become gangrenous uh, and eventually lead to his death. Wouldn't eat that. <laughs> gangrenous leg does not sound appetizing. Uh, the killing of William Montgomery Pike, however, can be attributed to William McFadden Foster. Gunshot. We are told it was an accident. Then again, we're told a lot of things. I wanted to know more about William Foster and William Pike, and as it turns out, they were besties long before becoming brothers of brothers-in-law. Apparently, Foster and Pike had been working on a riverboat sometime in 1842 en route to Tennessee when it was trapped in ice because poetry rhymes, you see. That's also precisely when Foster and Pike met the Murphy sisters. Sounds fun, the Murphy sisters. Harriet Frances Murphy and Sarah Murphy. It was love at first sight. Both couples were married before the ice had a chance to thaw. So they met the, the Murphy sisters on a boat in stuck in ice. And before they got the boat out of the ice, they were married, both of them, to both, to both guys. Or so the story goes, the date was December 29th, 1842. Harriet was only 14, Sarah was 16. But then there is the matter of Pike, Pike. Why is the name familiar? You guys all know who Pike is. Oh, yes, Albert Pike, Brigadier General of the American Confederate States, 33rd degree Mason, Albert Pike, Luciferian Albert Pike, the one and only. I checked. William and Albert Pike are related, first through the Revolutionary War officer Zebulon Pike. Supposing you want to know if Zeb was a Freemason or not, I checked he was, Zebulon Pike. He also happened to serve under everybody's favorite Freemason, George Washington. And then there's his son, Brigadier General, Zeb uh, Brigadier General Zebulon Montgomery Pike Jr., for whom Colorado's Pike Peak is named. The Pikes have actually have a county named after them in Pennsylvania as well. I hope we all realize that they don't simply hand out counties to families. Long before Albert Pike, the Pike name meant something. So by the time Albert Pike came on the scene, the Pikes were a somebody in America. James Brown Pike, we're almost through the genealogy, guys. Thanks for hanging with me here. James Brown Pike was William Montgomery Pike's uh, father and Zebulon Montgomery Pike Jr.'s younger brother, which technically makes Zebulon an uncle. 
What's important to note about Zebulon Montgomery Pike Jr., William's cousin, an obvious Freemason, is that he led two expeditions under the authority of President Thomas Jefferson through the new Louisiana Purchase Territory in 1805-1807, both of which coincided with the Lewis and Clark expedition, and also something about Sacagawea. You've probably heard the story before. Afterwards, Meriwether Lewis was either murdered or committed suicide, most likely the first option. The man who spoke openly about giants, blue-eyed white natives, and lost civilizations died of gunshot wounds at Grinderstan, an inn on the Natchez Trace, some 70 miles southwest of Nashville. Many of these Jefferson-mandated endeavors would further deserve further exploration. As a land surveyor, Zebulon would have been a colossal contributor to the old world Tartarian deception, and it only makes sense that another Pike, nephew cousin William Montgomery Pike, would have a hand in the narrative with the Donner Party. Returning to Harriet Murphy, remember the Murphy sisters, the, the Pike Mary, William Pike's 14-year-old wife. I haven't forgotten about her. If I'm doing my math right, she was only 19 during the Donner endeavor. I've seen sad 19th century photos before, but could you possibly frown any less for the photographer uh, Harriet? I get it. Your sister's husband shot your husband on the big move to California on the road trip through hell. But then again, maybe she's sad at the fact that she's a pike and knows the family secret but can't tell anybody about it. You never really know with these things. Harriet was born in South Carolina to Jeremiah Burns Murphy and Lavina W. Jackson Murphy. Take note of the Jackson. Sometime around 1832, while Harriet was but five years old, the Murphy family moved to Tennessee, and by 1836, they had converted to Mormonism. There it is, the M. This is where their story gets particularly interesting, as if it wasn't already. After Jeremiah Murphy died, Lavina Jackson Murphy took their children to the Mormon capital of uh, Nauvoo, Illinois, for the roundabout of two years. It is upon their return to Tennessee on a steamship that William Pike is said to arrive at the narrative of her life. So they're coming from the Mormon capital, went on a mission when she marries a pike. Lavina Jackson Murphy is the daughter of a certain Frederick Jackson and Charlotte Vincent from Union County, South Carolina. President Andrew Jackson was born on March 15, 1767, which would only make Frederick Jackson eight years his younger. I wanted to know if Frederick and the president were related. Well, Frederick Jackson's heritage is mostly scrubbed. No surprise. He was, however, born in Cross Keys Union, South Carolina, to parents Ralph Alexander Jackson and Delilah Murphy. There's the name again, Murphy. Are Harriet's parents kissing cousins? That is unimportant. They probably were, but that's unimportant. Andrew Jackson was born in the Waxhaws, where, whereas Frederick was born in Union County. The Waxhaws is, geographic, uh, is a geographical area straddling the borders of North and South Carolina. And I checked. Union County also straddles the North and South Carolina border, and they're only 60 miles removed. I'm willing to bet Harriet Murphy Pike was also close kin of the president. Anywho, sisters Harriet and Sarah met their dreamboats while trapped in ice and were married before the river had a chance to thaw. That's the official narrative anyhow. I am reminded of how Bill Clinton met Hillary Rodham while studying in the Yale Law Library in 1971. We are often fed these romantic chance meeting stories 
when in fact Hillary Rodham Clinton is closer related to King John than Bill Clinton is. Clearly, they are both royalty and their marriage was arranged. I, in my, from what I've seen, I think Hillary Clinton is more royal than Bill Clinton is. Here's another, uh, we're almost done with a couple more paragraphs here on the genealogies and then we'll move on. Here's another odd Pike connection, uh, though I am uncertain if it's directly important to the Donna Reed party. A certain Elizabeth Pike later married into the Booth family. Abraham Valentine Booth, whose father Abraham Booth migrated from England, much like John Wilkes Booth's father, Junius Brutus Booth. They appear to be related. That is all for now. I have shown you the Royal House of Hastings, as well as the Fraser clan, the Graves and the Pikes, all contributors to the Donner Party hoax. But then here are some other things to consider before closing the shop for the day or for the next few minutes or the next 30 seconds. Manifest destiny, the Mormon exodus, the Alamo false flag attack or event, which I, I need to cover that because that, that's so obviously a false flag attack. The Mexican-American War land grab, the Donna Reed party, the gold rush hoax, California and the inherited city of San Francisco and the Smithsonian. It's all one big, fat, juicy style. Everything and everyone is connected. I hope if you got anything out of that, it's to show you that all the movers and shakers, they're all, they're all closely related, close kin. They're all in these secret lodges. The Freemasons are all working together to, to you know, make this story work for the sheeple. All right, that was a lot to read. We are halfway through this, and I think we can get done at a decent hour tonight. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna just keep on trucking all the way through this. This is part three, Forlorn Hope, a party of cannibals. As you can see, I completed this last month. All right, difficult to believe, but. Three entire years have passed since I set out to cover the Donner Party hoax, all of which was a rather obvious extension of California's MMM style. And never once did I cover the part which is synonymous with the Donners, cannibalism. To my credit, it was the summer of 2020, and nearly everyone was scurrying around, standing six feet apart from the other sheeple, suffocating in face diapers, which is to say I was enlisted in the trenches fighting against the media's fake COVID-1984 psychodrama. That and a hundred other psyops were simultaneously assaulting my senses. They also required my tending to. Give me a break, will you? There is only one of me. I can't cover everything at once. See, I think what ultimately happened is I had all my, reach, my research on the Donners and cannibalism spread out before me until the moment when I didn't. I, told, I tell, tell you guys, I'm going to tell this joke probably every week for the rest of my life. And like NASA and the moon missions, the technology was lost. Sometimes it's too painful to build back up again. Well, I'm back at it again. The fake media isn't slowing down anytime soon either. And so, and I, I actually missed out like on the whole Titanic thing because I had to finish this paper. It was painful. Then I had to get done. And so I might as well get right into it. The cannibalism claims before they roll out the next thing. Starting out, you may be wondering who that handsome gentleman is in the photo. His name is Samuel Brennan. We covered him last week. He is newspaper man and a Freemason, as well as a high-ranking Mormon. This guy was in deep. Though wasn't a cannibal from what I can tell, at least not officially. Ring any bells? 
I covered him in my nineteen in my nineteen eight my eighteen forty nine. See, I, I said last week the nineteen forty nine, and see, I do that all the time. The eighteen forty nine California Gold Rush hoax paper. Not just any newspaper man or Mormon, though. The man was personally affiliated with Joseph Smith and ran the Mormon newspaper, The Prophet, before opening up the California, California Star in San Francisco, the first ever California newspaper. Fun fact. Brandon became California's first millionaire. Now, this is 1840s millionaire, okay? A millionaire, you know, is nothing nowadays. But this, is, this would be like, what? A billionaire back then? I mean, this is this is a big deal to be a millionaire. Just look at him in his top hat and three-piece vested suit, enjoying all that money. You might be wondering how he managed to accomplish that feat. It wasn't because he was lining his pockets with gold after staking a claim. No, like Marshall and Sutter, Brandon never once panned a single nugget from the stream. After his newspaper ran with the Gold Rush story for its 610-1848 edition, Brandon established a general store near Sutter's Fort. In the earliest days of the gold rush, which he is directly credited for popularizing, really he started the whole thing, his was the only store between gold country and San Francisco. How convenient. But then afterwards, he also invested in the quote-unquote laying down of the California railroads. This guy is a soggy diaper dripping with the aroma of psyop. Everything he touched seem to be part of the deception. Uh, I don't know if I covered this earlier. I, I wish I had included this in here. I don't know if I cover it later, but the same guy, Samuel Brannon, so he he made really his fortune on real estate. And you can go look, I, I searched all through his paper and he's always putting ads in there. He has all these, this property in San Francisco and he's selling it to the, the people coming. Uh, he basically, he just, he's one of the inheritors and he just has these big nice plush places and he's selling it for money to all the people coming in there's something else you should know about him samuel brannan is exclusively responsible for introducing the world to the donner party read all about it in art in an article called distressing news which i link you to there you can see the original uh, article You'll find the entire episode spilled out as part of his 213-1847 edition. Nearly every gruesome detail. Only the crisis actors would remain, each giving their independent and often contradictory versions of their snowbound winter in the Sierras. That much is to be expected, though. We are often told that the Donners are synonymous with cannibalism, but very few credit the same tantamount with the Masonic media, without which we would never be having this discussion. We're on page uh, 41, if you need caught up. The Donner Depical may not have made front page news, but the 213-8047 edition is only four pages thick, and Brandon's tale of frosty toes and cannibalism fills one of them entirely. So one out of the four pages is filled with this uh, story. It was the main story. None of its dozen plus articles manages to do that. I was thinking of copying the entire script, but then again, I have already dropped a link. You can read it there for yourself. Here is the gist of its opening. By Captain J.A. Sutter's launch, which arrived here a few days since, since from Fort Sacramento, we received a letter from a friend at that place containing a most distressing account of the situation of the immigrants in the mountains. 
they weren't called the Donner Party back then. They were just called the Mountain Immigrants. And all through his paper, he refers to them as that. It's kind of interesting. Who were prevented from crossing them by the snow. Out of a party of 11 who attempted to come into the valley on foot. The writer who is well qualified to judge is of the opinion that the whole party might have reached the California Valley before the first fall of snow if the men had exerted themselves as they should have done. Nothing but a contrary and contentious disposition on the part of some of the men belonging to the party prevented them from getting in as soon as any of the first companies. A letter from a friend is dispatched from Captain John Sutter at Sutter's Fort, which is here called Sacramento, interestingly enough. My first thought was to plant a red flag on that one, seeing as how Sutter's Fort was not named Sacramento until either 1848 or 1849. I couldn't even get really to the bottom of that. I saw contradictions on that. Some two years after Brandon penned his article, hold that thought. We are furthermore not told who this friend is. Though seeing as how Captain Sutter was a card-carrying Freemason and in league with James Marshall, another Freemason, as well as the Masonic media, I am willing to bet his friend is one of them. I decided, and I think I figure out who his friend was later on, I decided to snoop around in the Matrix, seeking out more information on Sacramento's founding, and guess what I learned? Well, read it for yourself. And it says here, the, cap the history of Sacramento, California, began with its founding by Samuel Brannan and John Augusta Sutter, Jr., in 1848, around in uh, Embarcadero that his father, John Sutter Sr., constructed at the, at the confluence of the American Sacramento Rivers. Well, well, well. Sacramento was founded by Sutter's son, Junior Sutter, and the one and only newspaper man, Samuel Brandon. This guy comes up a lot. There's yet another astounding accomplishment to tack onto his meddlesome resume. My only thought is that Brandon was either making a push for a Sutter's Fort name change in his newspaper column, or once again, the timeline doesn't stack up quite right. In and of itself, Sacramento is a fascinating name. It is a Spanish word for sacrament, indicating a religious ceremony or ritual, such as a baptism, held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. Interesting uh, choice of name, Brandon. Also, I didn't perform a background check this time around, but if Sutter Jr. isn't a Freemason, then call me a monkey's uncle. Another scrumptious tidbit, which can be found on Wiki's Sacramento page, has Sutter's fort being completely abandoned soon after Marshall discovered gold in 1848. This I did not know. San Francisco was also abandoned, if you guys recall, after gold was discovered, that I was fully aware of. Some of you still aren't putting the pieces together and are shrugging out a whoop-de-doo right about now. It's because I am claiming San Francisco was a pre-existent millennial kingdom city. But then again, the same might be said of Sacramento, though certainly the, uh, the later was nowhere near as grand. The cartoon drawing, by the way, the one I show you on this page, as a representation of what Sacramento was supposed to look like in the whereabouts of 1846 and was published by media man Frederick Gleason, not to be uh, uh, confused with uh, Gleason, the Gleason map, who was working out of Boston, not California. Well, look at what else Wiki says. The adobe structure was eventually, quote unquote, restored to its original condition. This deserves closer examination. Turns out Sutter's Fort wasn't rebuilt 
until 1893, and by Native Sons of the Golden West, a federal frat boys club tasked with slapping over a thousand monument markers across the state of California, too, to, you know, tell stories. They're probably Freemasons, every last one of them. It doesn't help my suspicions that their little Auburn clubhouse happens to be a former Masonic hall. I'm sure it's all a coincidence, though. What are the chances that, I found this picture pretty funny, what are the chances that the California State Capitol building was actually constructed when they said it was? 1860 is the year they give us, which would place its completion only 12 years after Sutter's Fort was abandoned. I'm of the mind that it's much older than that, hundreds of years probably. But then there are a scant few construction photos floating around online to prove me wrong. I'm showing one of them to you now. And so I will ask, what is wrong with the photo? I spy several. Just look at the photo. The sky is completely bleached out for starters. But then the horse and the two construction workers, or maybe they're the foremen, have thick, uh, thick white lines around them. Glows of radiation, maybe? That's not healthy. Obvious indicator is that they've been cropped in. The same can be said of the equipment in the foreground as well. More cropping, making this a composite rather than an actual photo. The planks of wood on the left don't even look real. Are those ink lines? They're cartoons. I knew it. That is a cartoon if ever I've seen one. If you guys remember when I did the, the Chicago, the city of Chicago, the, the World Fair, the construction photos time and time again, you see these same cartoons that the newspaper man just went and drew in. And they pass off as a real photo. Somebody has gone to great lengths to deceive us. All right, now here's more from um, Brandon's first article, getting back to that. Since that time, the middle of November, we heard nothing of the company until last week when a messenger was sent down from Captain Johnson's settlement with the astounding information that five women and two men had arrived at that point entirely naked, their feet frostbitten, and informed them that the company arrived within three miles of the small log cabin near Truckee's Lake on the east side of the mountains and found the snow so deep that they could not travel and feared starvation. 16 of the strongest, 11 males and five females, agreed to uh, start uh, for the settlement on foot. Continuing with Braddon's Donner Party article, we are told of five naked women and two naked men who arrived at the house of Captain Johnson. Say what? They were naked, and that is no small detail. Were they so hungry that they ate their clothes, starting with their coats and then moving on down to their belts, underwear, and shoes? In all my years, I have never heard anything like that. I have even wasted countless hours scouring for more information on these naked people trekking through the wintry snow. Any information at all and can find nothing, nada. They did not ex exist except for Brandon's colorful mention of them. And this is, again, this is the introduction to the world of the Donner Party. Okay, the first introduction is through these naked people that show up. That is a common attribute to these intel psyops. We are often fed information, which we are then expected to drop, sometimes due to last-minute script revisions. It happens all the time though also because of crisis actors. My only conclusion is that the snowshoe party, as they're known, these five naked women and two naked guys, is being described for us in Brandon's article. 
They would later become known by Donner Party storytellers as the Forlorn Hope, though they're, I call them basically the Snowshoe Party in here, they're, they're called both. Johnson's Ranch is some 100 miles from Donner's Pass. Sacramento is another 50 miles to the west. Long march for seven naked people, even in the summer months, but I digress. They originally left Camp Donner on December 16th and did not arrive at Johnson's Ranch until January 17th, though official history now claims there were only 15 of them rather than the 16 which Brannon mentions according to his Sacramento source. So there is another error. Actually, there are many errors uh, in his articles, so many er errors that we are never once given the same details twice. I'm about to give you three separate sources regarding the Snowshoe Party's arrival at, John at Johnson's Ranch on January 17th, none of which agree. The first arrives from James Reed himself, the guy leading this whole operation. The man whom you will recall had earlier killed team Teamster John Snyder with a knife and then rode on ahead to Sutter's Fort and beyond seeking help. Reed apparently got his hands on the journal of Snowshoe Party member William H. Eddy. Eddy was a point man in all this, and he apparently sends a lot of contradictory reports out to the media. Rather than handing that diary over to the media, which I don't know why he didn't, and having no proof that he'd even acquired it, Reed simply delivered a synopsis of the said diary to newspaper man J.H. Merriman for the article of a company of immigrants in the mountains of California, which was printed in the Illinois Journal on December 9th, 1847. So one year later it was printed, and this is what he said. And on the 17th, Mr. Eddy arrived at Johnson's, leaving the rest of the party at an Indian village. So James Reed has William Eddy arriving totally alone at Johnson's ranch on the 17th. He never says anything about being naked. The other surviving members of the Snowshoe Party, he says, have stayed behind at an Indian village. So they didn't even arrive with him. Well, then take a look at the next statement. John Sinclair, Alcade um, of the Sacramento District from 1846-1849, had earlier been a newspaper man in, the, in Hawaii, of all places, which hints heavily at and, in fact, suggests his direct Masonic connections. Something I need to cover is... Um, the, the Masons, they, they talk about how the whole foundation of Hawaii was a Masonic affair. I need to really look into that more. He is specifically recorded as being friendly with the Reed family. So what does that tell you? Also, he is claimed to have officiated the marriage of five Donner members. In February of 1847, he wrote a statement which was based directly upon several conversations with the survivors, though he once again pulled from the notes handed to him by William H. Eddy. So Eddie's just passing out notes to everybody and saying, print this. Now that I'm thinking about it, John Sinclair may very well be the friend who Brandon spoke of. He's, you know, uh, Samuel Brandon said he had his contact from Sacramento. This is him, John Sinclair, I think. In turn, Sinclair handed off his notes to newspaper man Edwin Bryant for his 1848 book, What I Saw in California. So keep in mind, like, you know, all these books and these articles are being published right away on telling the world about the, the terrible Donner Party, you know, episode. So I want to get to Brian's quote, but it is difficult passing up the opportunity to highlight the man who has a street named after him in San Francisco. Here is some of what I gleaned. Brian set out from Independence, Missouri for California with the Donner Party, but then uh, heeded the warnings of James Kleiman, 
a professional guide of the American West. You can look him up. And avoided Hastings cutoff along with seven other men. He arrived safely at Sutter's Fort on September 1st, 1846, which is also, keep in mind, you know, the Donners wouldn't arrive till like February to April of the following year, which is also another one of Brendan's observations, that the Donners should have arrived months earlier had they taken the correct route. You probably got this from, uh, to, from Brian. I didn't quote that part, but it is there if you uh, take the time to read it. Afterwards, Bryant was rewarded for his efforts in becoming the second Alcade of San Francisco. During his five-month stint as an uh, Alcade or governor, Bryant arranged to sell 450 publicly owned waterfront lots to private buyers. All right, so he's selling 450 of waterfront lots to buyers. I talked about I talked about the post mud flood inheritors often, and the dude was literally one of them. He also had incredible insight into the gold that was about to be discovered, seeing as how he purchased 14 homes for himself for 4,000 and then sold them in 1849 for a whopping $100,000. A lot of money back then. Getting back to Sinclair's statement in Brian's book, this is what we read. The 17th, after walking two or three miles with an Indian for a pilot, Mr. Foster and the women gave out, their feet being swollen to such a degree that they could go on no further. Mr. Eddy, who would appear stood the fatigue of the journey better than any of them, here left them and assisted by two Indians, that evening reached the settlement on Bear Creek. The inhabitants, on being informed of the situation of the party behind, immediately started with provisions on foot and reached them that night about 12 o'clock. So the Mr. Foster mentioned in John Sinclair's report is none other than William McFadden Foster, the man who married one of the two Murphy sisters on the riverboat along with William Montgomery Pike. Sinclair has Eddie arriving at Johnson's ranch on the 17th, though he is assisted by two Indians this time, uh, uh, rather than arriving alone. Whereas Foster and the women do not stay behind at the Indian village, as Reed recalled. They journey on ahead some two or three miles with an Indian for a guide and then collapse in the snow due to swollen feet. So which is it? The third retelling derives from newspaper man Jesse Quinn Thornton, whom I have already quoted from as a source of improv in his book, Oregon and California, 1848. He also pulled his sources from Eddie's notes. It's incredible. They're all pulling sources from Eddie, and none of them agree, just as the other two had. And here's what he claims. The chief accompanied them. This is the Indian chief, uh, probably a Miwok Indian chief, accompanied them during the day with many of his tribe, an Indian being on either side of each of the sufferers, supporting them and assisting them forward. So the five naked women, the two naked men, uh, they each now have an Indian holding them up and carrying them, including the chief. They thus continued from day to day until the morning of the 17th, the chief from one village accompanied by some of his men supporting them to the next. So now there's multiple Indian villages and the chief, you know, he carries them to one village and then the next village carries them to the next. They arrived at the house of Colonel Ritchie about half an hour before sunset, having traveled 18 miles the last six miles of the way were marked by the blood from Mr. Eddie's feet. This is the only report I found uh, from the blood of Mr. Eddie's feet. 
Now we read that two Indians accompanied each of the seven surviving Snowshoe Party members. I should stop calling them the Naked Party because only Brannon says that they're naked. And that the chief was among them. Nobody was left behind in the village in this report. Nobody fell down in the snow. He says they, when speaking of Eddie's arrival, Johnson's Ranch, Johnson's Ranch, whom he here identifies as the house of Colonel Matthew Dale Ritchie. Totally different dude. Thornton doesn't even bother to spell his name correctly, nor does he seem aware of Johnson's Ranch. By the way, Ritchie was only so much a colonel as Colonel Sanders or Colonel Tom Parker, and his cabin was near Johnson's Ranch, from what I can make out, but not a part of it. He then adds that the six miles leading up to Ritchie's home was paved in blood. Eddie alone was bleeding out, it seems, and nobody else. The only way such a uh, feet would be humanly possible from a starving naked cannibal as if he had two Indians to carry him, but you and I know the Donner Party storytellers were making this crap up as they went along. Returning once more to Brandon's article, we're on page 50 if you need caught up. I am not asking you to pull out the magnifying glass, which many of my serial readers have purchased in the past. It's a good investment, though, by the way. Yes, I make a dedicated effort of taking the scissors and glue stick to these historical documents. Thanks again, Carl Winslow, for making me do that, upping my game. But that is not to say that I haven't taken the additional time in transcribing the article for you. And so here's a section from it. Scantily clothed, so now they're not naked, they're just scantily clothed, and provided with provisions, they commenced that horrid journey over the mountains that Napoleon's feet on the Alps was child's play compared with it. Pause. It is at least nice to know that they began their journey with some clothes on. Just ask their mother, though. Had they started out with an additional coat and a beanie, maybe even a shawl or two from the wagon, you figure they would have had a more varied pa uh, palais of culinary delight to choose from as fabric is concerned before turning to people. But then Brandon never outright explains the snowshoe party's nakedness to be a result of their ward world consumption. Best not to assume. I, I still don't know how they lost their clothes. Continuing. After wandering about a number of days, bewildered in the snow, their provisions gave out, and long hunger made it necessary to resort to that horrid recourse, casting lots to see who should give up life, that their bodies might be used for food for the remainder. But at this time, the weaker began to die, which rendered it unnecessary to take life. And as they died, the company went into camp and made meat of the dead bodies of their companions. So here the cannibalism begins. After traveling 30 days, seven out of the 16 arrived within 15 miles of Captain Johnson's, the first house of the California settlements. And most singular is to relate, all the females had started, five women came in safe, and but two of the men, and one of them was brought in on the back of an Indian. Nine of the men died, and seven of them were eaten by their companions. That's lovely. The first person that died was Mr. C.S. Stanton the young man who so generously returned to the company with Captain Sutter's uh, and uh, uh, Bakuro's and provisions, his body was left on the snow. The last two that died was Captain Sutter's two Indians, and their bodies were used as food by the seven that came in. And so begins Brandon's account of cannibalism, but more on that in a moment. I couldn't help but notice that one of the seven surviving Snowshoe Party members managed to be carried upon the back of an Indian. I am once again assuming a naughty no-no in these crisis actor situations, but I take him to be William McFadden Foster, which would furthermore give us yet another variation to the tale. Well, which is it? Did he stay behind in the Indian village? 
fall down in the snow only to be retrieved by a late night rescue party, get propped up and escorted by two Indians holding an arm, or did one simply carry him on his back? Nobody seems to know the correct version of the original storytellers. The claim is that nine members of the 16 snowshoers died and that a whopping seven of them were eaten by their companions. Brandon is being specific about his numbers, even though later accounts claim there were only 15 in the party, and he claims there were 16. Most historians aren't even willing to commit to the seven eaten. All that seems to be agreed upon are the two Indians. They get eaten in every scenario, the poor guys. The one person mentioned who didn't get a fork stuck into him was Charles Tyler Stanton. Stanton left the Donners at an earlier date, presumably on September 12th, 1846, and arrived at Sutter's Fort only to return with seven mules and the two Miwok Indians, the two, the two guys who get eaten. He also happened to be the first to die among the snowshoers. The name Tyler immediately nabs my attention because Masonic lodges originally met in inns or taverns, and Tyler is an old English word for the keeper of an inn door. That's an interesting co coincidence in the name given that he appears to be orchestrating the narrative. I wanted to know why he wasn't eaten, but also why Brandon was so sure of that fact. Seeing as how he went out of his way to mention him, and this is what I learned. I, it is interesting that he went out of his way to mention him. Wiki is kind enough to give us a timeline. There's a link there if you want to look at the whole timeline of dates. And it appears as though Stanton wasn't eaten because the thought hadn't yet crossed anyone's mind when he lit a pipe in the snow, telling his 15 other companions to go on and leave him be. The date was December 21st. Nobody officially saw him again. We are never told of an injury either. The person with the food pantry simply told his companions that they had eaten the very last morsel of bread and Stanton, having crisscrossed the Sierras three times in three months, thought the best outcome was to sit down in the snow and give up, smoke a pipe while he was at it. Well, the cannibal lifestyle is said to have begun on the whereabouts of Christmas Day. Well, there's a celebration of winter solstice, if ever I've seen one, death and resurrection and all that, and all that among the furs. The problem I'm having is in tracking down the specifics. I am showing you another timeline, this time from the school curriculum, and we are only given vague assumptions. Between the dates of December 25th and 29th, it says, quote, several individuals died and the survivors resorted to cannibalism, unquote. How many is several? What are their names? And who among them was cannibalized? You have to really work hard to track these down. Like you just don't, get the, the, most people are not upfront with this. We aren't told outright, probably because many historians, many historians don't even buy it. When you start digging into this, a lot of historians are like, yeah, we don't think these people were really eaten. They, they don't know about like hoax and media hoaxes. They don't think that way, but they're kind of saying what I'm saying. Back to Wiki for answers then. What do we see right here? Uh, December 26, 1846. Finally, we've given, we're given a couple of names to work with. Patrick Dolan and Lemuel Murphy die on Christmas Day. On December 26th, the following day, the snowshoers take up the cannibal lifestyle. There's two down the pie hole, five more to go. December 30th, jumping forward four days, nobody else among the snowshoers is recorded as having kicked the frozen bucket, telling me that the several is yet another exaggeration. But who is expected to notice? It is on, so anyways, it is on December 30th that the last morsels of Dolan and Murphy are digested and William Foster has grown an appetite. He wants the Indians. Eddie slyly tells the Miwoks about it. 
thereby ruining his plans. Though initially doubtful, they vanish into the woods, the two Miwoks, leaving Foster to his lust for flesh. And I again remind you all, it seems like all the stories that I look at, they all agree with this one incident. They can't agree on the others, but this one they agree on. On January 7th, William Itty manages to kill a deer. Okay, uh, take note of that. Finally, there is some truth to the story. The forlorn hope had deer to eat and plenty of it. Not just one. I think they had more than that, if they even existed to begin with. And not just one deer. I know that's what it says, but I am here to tell you that they were perfectly capable of shooting a great deal more of them. I'm not simply talking out of my butt this time around either. Even the Donners hunted deer in, uh, in Donner Lake. I'll get to that. Despite being told a different story. I will show you, but you'll have you'll also have to wait around until I get to the camp at Donner Pass. Anywho, Jay Fosdick dies. He's the next. Apparently, the deer is sufficient enough that nobody invites Jay to dinner, and so I am under the impression that he would be the other uneaten soul in Brandon's editorial piece. We have two of them, Jay Fosdick and Charles Stanton. That leaves seven more out of the nine who were eaten, according to the report, and need to be accounted for. The Indians split at this point. I'm only counting Dolan Murphy on my fingers. All right, in it. It wasn't easy fighting the first Eaton individual. Somebody whom we only know as Antonio the Mexican was the second to die right after Charles Stanton and the first to be cannibalized. So the first to be cannibalized was Antonio the Mexican, but there is hardly ever a mention of him. Nobody seems to know who he was and why he was included among the Donner Party to begin with, or if he even existed at all. It took me a while, but I was able to track down an account of his death, though it doesn't even come to us via the historian and novelist George Stewart until a hundred years after the fact. And this is what we read about Antonio the Mexican. Antonio the Mexican, who had followed the train as herdsman of the cattle, lay by the fire sleeping in a heavy stupor. This actually comes across like one of those Looney Tune cartoons, you know, when they're starving and they look over and they see the person, they look like a piece of steak. He breathed difficulty and unnaturally. Once he moved in his sleep, he threw out an arm so that his hand fell into the fire. Eddie, remember Eddie's the survivor, the, lying nearby and awake, himself exhausted, saw what had happened, but supposed that the pain would arouse the sleeper. And in any case, if Antonio were not aroused, so much the better. But the hand doubled up and shriveled with the heats, and finally, Eddie, arousing himself, and drew it from the fire. Eddie lay down, but Antonio's breathing became a rattling sound, and he flung out his arm again. The watcher, realizing that nothing mattered any longer for Antonio, saw the hand shrivel in the fire in the flame until it burned to a coal. Cold, fatigue, and hunger had done their work. Again, there was food in the camp. So basically, he cooked himself. Well, that was colorful. Antonio, the Mexican, flings his hand into the flames. Eddie just lays there watching it cook, all the while salivating from the mouth. Oh, he eventually got around to removing the shriveled hand for courtesy purposes. Don't want to overcook it. But then Antonio throws it right back in again. There is your original story of cannibalism right there. That's it. Antonio, the Mexican, literally prepared himself as the main course. The only part of the story that Stuart left out is where Eddie hallucinates and sees a sweating sausage or fat, juicy steak where the Mexican lay. What? Jay Fosdick was eaten also? Wiki has been holding back on me. 
Get to it, Carl Winslow. Apparently, Fosdick heard Eddie's rifle shot and, exc and exclaimed, There, Eddie killed a deer. Now if I can only get to him, I shall live. He then died in the arms of his wife, Sarah Graves uh, Fosdick, who we covered before. And his body was used for sustenance. Famous last words, apparently. I don't know about you, but I have heard gunshots in the woods and can imagine a great number of scenarios. How did Fosdick know it was a deer as opposed to, say, quail or a rabbit or a bird of some sort or a bear? And who is writing this stuff? Yet another winter solstice death is assigned to Franklin Ward Graves. You will have to refer back to the names I pulled from the Graves genealogy. The man was American royalty. Apparently, he told his two daughters, Sarah Graves, Fosdick, and Mary Ann Graves, to cook him up and eat him after he'd gone. Sure. Which is precisely what they did. The origins of cannibalism ex explained yet again. His final will and testament appears to explain another line or two from Brandon's report when he writes, I could state several most horrid circumstances connected with this affair, such as one of the women being obliged to eat part of the body of her father and brother, and another saw her husband's heart cooked, which would be more suitable for a hangman's journal than the column of a family newspaper. The woman obliged to eat the body of her father is probably a reference to either Mary or Sarah in reference to Franklin. Not sure where he's pulling the information on the brother, though. Brother-in-law, maybe. Jay Fosdick is likely the husband who had his heart cooked. Anywho, there are five of the seven mentioned by Samuel Brandon as being eaten. Dolan, Murphy, Fosdick, Graves, and the Mexican, continuing on to discover the identity of the final two. We see there January 9th, 1847. I'm not going to read it for lack of time. Bummer, the Indians didn't make it. The only two people I was rooting for, William Foster came upon Lewis and Salvador, lying exhausted in the woods and shot them. Those aren't even the real names, you know. Lewis is a Spanish name meaning famous warrior, and Salvador is of Mexican origins meaning savior. Historians have had their work cut out for them seeking records, especially since they were employed for Sutter. And the consensus is that Lewis and Salvador could have been anybody. Again, I think they, there's no records on them. I think they didn't exist. They may have reemerged as Manuel and Enrique, for all I know. Lewis and Salvador are the last of the cannibalized among the snow assures because within the matter of another three days, they reach an Indian village, or by some accounts, multiple Indian villages, where everyone indulges in a feast of acorns, by some accounts, acorn bread, a nice change of pace. And so the final tally consisting of nine dead and seven eaten in Brandon's report is a match, even if the stories don't line up quite right. It wasn't even that difficult to find inconsistencies. They were usually in the first place that I looked. I could devote an entire year to the Donner Party, tracking down every conceivable account and discover a class six gauntlet of contradiction around nearly every bend or turn, which I am told is the highest class available as rapids go, class six. What seems certain is that the victims of bad roadside directions were already decided upon from the very beginning of this MMM operation, at least as far as the members of Forlorn Hope are concerned. Because it showed, you know, they, they always do that, right? In these, these psyops, they just, they show you these like, these victims right away and they have stories to tell, they don't match up. But then you should know, I haven't even gotten to Camp Donner quite yet. And boy, did they have stories to tell. Gotta love improv actors. We are on to part four. Thank you for everyone's patience. Now I usually end here at nine o'clock. 
but I'm not going to hold off for another week on this. This needs to be done tonight. And you guys will be grateful that we don't have to revisit this next week. Part four, the hoaxers of Truckee Lake and Alder Creek. Has anybody driven over to Donner Pass? I do have to admit, you know, I, it was interesting. I, I drove over Donner Pass one summer and I think it was June or July and it actually snowed on us as we're going over Donner Pass. Like, well, I'll be, I'll be darned. Regarding those uh, rumors of cannibalism and other innuendos, there is something that you should know. It was all made up by actors in bed with the Masonic media. I said it. Not taking it back either. Perhaps there were people in the California mountains who got snug for the winter. They ate oxen. They ate deer. Warmed themselves by the fire. Believe it or not, there were horses that survived the season, telling us that starvation wasn't an issue. But the official narrative doesn't let you in on that rather inconvenient fact. Archaeology as a scientific study is only 150 years old, uh, though, though the Donner Party, the Donner Psyop is older than that. Nobody thought to plant any incriminating evidence into the thawing snow at that time, which is a shame for them, because absolutely no evidence whatsoever of human remains has been discovered at Donner's Pass or anywhere else in the whereabouts when there should have been had their ridiculous story been true. And I'll, this, that's how I'll end it tonight, talking about the archaeological evidence. What's more, there is not even evidence to support that anybody died. As usual, I will take you through it. We're on page 60 if you need caught up. I'm guessing that one or two of you read my critical comments on the California Star's February 13th issue as it pertained to the cannibal lifestyle of winter snowshoers and didn't share in the skepticism. There is always one person in the crowd who boasts of their ability not to be swayed against their old friend and ally, the news, because why would they lie? I didn't say I was done commenting upon the media coverage quite yet. I took it upon myself to track down and read through Brandon's columns week by week, month for month, while they dragged out the psychodrama. And what can I, what I can confirm is that it gets worse, way worse. Did I tell you about the April 10th issue? It's a hatchet job. There's a link to it. Before taking you through it, though, I will give you a warning. Try not to roll your eyes. They may get stuck like that. All right, here's, here it is. A more shocking scene cannot be imagined than that witnessed by the party of men who went to the relief of the unfortunate immigrants in the California mountains. The bones of those who had died and been devoured by the miserable ones that still survived were lying around their tents and cabins. Bodies of men, women, and children with half the flesh torn from them lay on every side. A woman sat by the body of her husband who had just died, eating out his tongue. The heart she had already taken out, broiled and eaten. The daughter was seen eating the flesh of the father, the mother that of her children, children that of father and mother. The, uh, the emaciated, wild, and ghastly appearance of the survivors added to the horror of the scene. In review, Sutter's rescue party arrive at the camp to a scene of horror. Sheer horror, I tell you. There are skeletal remains strewn about like gnawed upon chicken bones. The half-eaten bodies of men, women, and children form boundary markers for the four corners of the camp. A woman sits by her husband's corpse, eating out his tongue raw as the second course, the first being his boiled heart. Elsewhere in the camp, a daughter works on her father while a mother consumes her children, and naughty children devour their parents. 
Did you get all of that? Right. Not even the Brothers Grimm were that fanciful. Had they rescued Hansel and Gretel from a gingerbread house, I would have found that more believable. If only Samuel Brennan had ended there. No, the article keeps hammering in the nails into its own coffin. Continuing, so changed had the immigrants become that when the party sent out arrived with food, the rescue party comes with food, some of them cast it aside and seemed to prefer the putrid human flesh that still remained. Oh, sure. The day before the party arrived, one of the immigrants took a child of about four years of age in bed with him and devoured the whole before morning. And the next day, he ate another about the same age before noon. Now, normally I am not a swearing man, but OMGG, the extra G is for golly, as in, oh my golly gosh. Because how in the world am I supposed to read something like this without spitting my coffee out all over the computer screen? They almost had me going at the wife eating her husband's heart and liver with uh, fava beans and a nice Chianti out of sheer necessity. But then passing up on sacramental groceries because mommy and daddy's raw putrid carcass tastes better? Forget what I told you earlier. I'm making an exception and will risk the pendulum swing of my eyes. It's no wonder why they dropped this plot point. Nobody talks about this anymore. But again, I remind you, this is how it started. And nobody wants to, to comment upon this because it's so ridiculous. Also, I will remind you that the February 13th, as well as the April 10th issues of the California Star, was how the Donners were introduced to the world. I have stated in the past, specifically in my Charles Manson hoax paper, that horror movies are intel movies, and in fact, they appear to have created the genre. Clearly, the Donner Party is one of them. I mean, this is like a sheer, I don't even know if they make horror movies like this. I don't watch them, but this is as horror as it gets, as far as I'm concerned. Regarding the immigrant who took a four-year-old to bed and then devoured him before morning, that would be a reference to Louis Kesseberg, the German. How the hell do you devour an entire child in bed? Did he spit the bones out too? I might understand someone eating a sandwich in bed or maybe crinkling a bag of chips in bed, but then who has ever heard of someone leading a heifer to the mattress only to slaughter and eat it raw on the sheets and the pillow where they sleep. If I'm reading this right, Kesselberg had such an insatiable appetite that he devoured another child on the following morning before noon. The California star left out the part where he was licking his fingers and burping when the rescue party arrived. It gets worse. You, you're probably thinking we've scraped the bottom of the barrel, but then you would be wrong about that. The June 5th, 1847 edition, I kept reading ahead to see what would happen, of the California Star features yet another firsthand account from a Sacramento rescuer arriving at the Donners. And Louis Kesseberg, the German, plays a prominent role in the story. He's not done eating people, apparently. Now, keep in mind that, you know, the, the original rescue party came, what, was it February? So he's still hanging around for another month or two, still eating people after the groceries had arrived. April 17th reached the cabins between 12 and one o'clock, expected to find some of the sufferers alive. Mrs. Donner and Kiss, uh, Kiesberg, he spells them wrong here, in particular, entered the cabins and a horrible scene presented itself. 
Human body is terribly mutilated, legs, arms, and skulls scattered in every direction. One body, supposed to be that of Mrs. Eddie, lay near the entrance, the limbs severed off and a frightful gash in the skull. The flesh from the bones was nearly consumed and a painful silence pervaded the place. So this isn't the first rescue party that came and got them. This is like, a, they're coming back a month, a month or two later just to visit them again. Notice the date given to us, April 17th. That is the date when the individual who refers himself as Captain uh, Fillon, probably a fictional character, I can't find this guy, arrives at Truckee Lake. Mind you, the scene before us does not involve the first responder featured in the April 10th issue. The Donner Party was initially rescued on February 19th. We saw that scene of horror already. This is another one entirely two months after the first, and still the cannibalism continues. The bodies of the dead are exhumed all over again and mutilated, legs and arms strewn about in every direction. Mrs. Eddie would be Eleanor Eddie, the wife of William Eddie of the Snowshoe Party, the guy who had several different stories attached to him. She is listed in official journals as having died on February 7th, two weeks before the rescue, and then being buried in the snow on the 9th. Two months have passed, and now she is depicted as having her limbs severed off, the flesh nearly picked clean from her bones. The frightful gash in the skull is an innuendo of murder. You know, it, it's like, really, why did you write that in there? She died two months earlier. He, he gashed, put a gash in her skull again. Mrs. Eddie had received a blunt blow to the head with the intent of being eaten. Nope, official history didn't go with that one either. Nobody talks about this anymore. All right, well, here's a picture right here of George Donner. We're on page 64. If you know, we caught up 10 pages ago guys we will get through this thank you for your patience george donner the one and only of the donner party fame was murdered too you know it's all outlined in the same june 5th california star article wherein we read of captain uh, Fillin's continued journey eight miles onward to camp donner so I need to explain here you know that the donners they were back several miles from the rest of the camp uh, they were all kind of there you know, one at the lake, one at Alder Creek. And this is what he found. At the mouth of the tents stood a large iron kettle filled with human flesh cut up. It was from the body of George Donner. The head had been split open and the brains extracted therefrom. And to the appearance, he had not been long dead, not over three or four days at the most. The fate of George Donner is that he was cut up, stuffed into a cooking pot, and his brains were eaten out. Eleanor Eddy is murdered. George Donner is murdered. Who is the killer? Detective Felon is on the case and it is time to find out, continuing. Knowing the Donners had a considerable sum of money, we searched diligently, but were unsuccessful. The party for the cabins were unable to keep the trail of the mysterious parsonage owing to the rapid melting of the snow. They therefore went directly for the cabins and upon entering discover, discovered there's the German again, Kiesberg, lying down amidst the human bones and beside him a large pan full of fresh liver and lights. They asked him what had become of his companions, whether they were alive and what had become of Mrs. Donner. He answered them by stating they were all dead. Mrs. Donner, he said, had in attempting to cross from one cabin to another, missed the trail, you don't wanna do that, and slept out one night why okay that uh, that she came to his camp the next night very much fatigued he made her a cup of coffee placed her in bed and rolled her well in the blankets but the next morning found her dead he 
eats her body and found her flesh the best he had ever tasted. Oh, sure. He further stated that he obtained from her body at least four pounds of fat. No traces of her person could be found, nor the body of Mrs. Murphy either. I just thought of this. It's interesting that like they're saying that like there's no traces of their bodies to be found. They're telling you like, look, if you go up there looking for their bodies, you're not going to find them because apparently they ate bones and everything and they're just, they're gone. When the last company left the camp three weeks previous, Mrs. Donner was in perfect health, though unwilling to come and leave her husband there and offered 500 to any person or persons who could come out and bring them in saying this in the presence of Keysburg, and she had plenty of tea and coffee. We suspected that it was her who had taken the piece from the shoulder of beef in the chair before mentioned. In the cabin with Keysburg was found two kettles of human blood, and all supposed to be over one gallon. Um, Rhodes asked him where he had got the blood. He answered, there is blood and dead bodies, duh. Louis uh, Kessiberg, or Kessberg had the most impressive eating habits more like an insatiable appetite, as I mentioned earlier, capable of luring a child to, into his bed by night and leaving only the bones come morning. Actually, not even that. He was then capable of devouring another child whole before lunchtime. No traces remain. Now Eleanor Eddy is exhumed from her grave while eight miles up the road. Mrs. Donner, Miss, Mr. Donner's in a cooking pot, and contrarily, no traces of Mrs. Murphy can be found. Uh-oh. Mrs. Donner, though, it looks as though he was able to fatten her up a little before making his move. Who invited this ogre? But then seeing as how he was drinking blood from the kettle, over a gallon by the looks of it, he was also a vampire. If you stop to think about it, though, it, it must work up an appetite, having to walk back and forth between two camps eight miles apart seeking victims. There are stories out there regarding the neighbor from hell, and just when you thought you'd heard them all, this one takes the icing on the cake. After further investigation, I think I discovered the identity of the, ch the, identity of the child from the April 10th issue as well. One of them, at least. Remember, he, he lured one of them into his bed. For that, we will have to return to the Donner's Wiki article, which I have linked on one page or another, but here it is again. You will have to scroll down to the section titled Third Relief to see what I see and follow along. The child belonged to William Eddy of the Snowshoe Party. Upon arriving to Truckee Lake on March 14th, Kesper, the German ogre, told Eddy that he had eaten the remains of his son. Eddy then threatened to murder Kesper, and the two little girls of the daughters were quickly uh, evacuated out of the camp. Tamsin Donner, however, remained behind so as to keep an eye on her husband. That would be Mrs. Donner hoping nobody would cook him. Then again, Kessberg stayed too. Kessberg had his eye on George, but also as we have come to learn on Tamsin. He was simply waiting for the right opportunity. Also, he would exact his revenge upon William Eddy by exhuming the body of his wife, eight miles up the road, apparently, after William Eddy threatened to kill him for eating his son. Was it a marked grave? We aren't told. Kessberg must have had the nose of a California grizzly before they went extinct. I bet you never thought the Donner Party narrative was so dramatic. Even more painful, painfully obvious is that Alder Creek is only eight miles away from Truckee Lake. Oh, it, it, uh, it is not. It is something like six miles away. Most of the Donner Party camped at Donner Lake, whereas George and Jacob Donner and their family stayed be back at Alder Creek due to broken wagon wheel 
issues. A rescue party walking back and forth through the snow would or the thawing snow of spring would recognize the difference between six miles and eight miles. These are professional pioneer men. I'm not at all convinced that this Captain Fillin fellow ever made it out to any location, except for maybe the neighborhood of make-believe, as he can't even get the mileage right. Continuing to the next paragraph. I'm not gonna read all that. Obviously, I don't have a magnifying glass for that. But I document it, obviously, because these things change when I comment upon them. If anything, Wiki has to tone the original reports down considerably, hoping that nobody realized how obviously invented the entire storyline is, slapped together by the Yerba Buena Lodge brothers. Even Wiki can't seem to evade the human flesh in the pot story, though. They don't outright tell you it was George Donner, but it is heavily implied in that they are sourcing the June 5th California Star article, obviously. I have linked you to that one too and won't be doing it again. Keep reading to discover the part where Captain Felon and company, whoever this Captain Felon is, discovered George Donner's pistols, jewelry, and $250 in gold, and then recall how Tamsin had offered a reward of $500 to anyone who could successfully evacuate her, her husband. There was money missing. Somebody had stolen the Donner fortune, but not before first murdering and eating them and then sitting around in his cabin with buckets of blood. All right, now moving on to a section in Wikipedia under Donner Party called Memories and Rumors of Cannibalism, page 68 if you need caught up. The media psyop is so ridiculous that, that Wiki is notably particular in their words when claiming there were only quote-unquote memories and rumors of cannibalism, and what does that tell you? Even the memories may have been based upon rumors. They are furthermore pressed to admit there were many among the Donners who rejected the cannibalism narrative altogether. Well, thank God for Charles McLashen then, the trucking media man and butterfly farmer. Charles McLashen, I talked about him earlier uh, a couple uh, sections ago. Charles McLashen was the glue that held the unraveling psyop together in so much that he uh, organized the narrative among pro-cannibal participants in his 1879 novel, History of the Donner Party. I checked. No mention on whether or not McGlashan was a Freemason, though he propped up the Ku Klux Klan in his newspaper, indicating that he was one of them. As if his role as a gatekeeper and a controller couldn't be any more obvious, I am showing you a picture of McGlashan Point. Mm -hmm, that's what it reads on the plaque. What is that body of water in the valley below? It is Truckee Lake, or what they call Donner Lake now. McGlashan Point is named after the man who oversaw the cannibalism narrative at the lake. The same year that McGlashan's book was published, let's see what year was that, that was uh, 1879. The aged Georgia Donner, one of the two Donner daughters who managed to leave, and with, uh, to, uh, leave with the relief, wrote to McGlashan to reprimand him for neglecting to mention the cannibalism which she claims to have experienced at Alder Creek. Wait, wasn't Lewis Kisberg camped at Alder Creek with the Donners? He was. Well, that's awkward. Apparently, McLashen totally snubbed the uh, Kisberg fable. But then again, so did Georgia Donner. Nobody mentioned him. According to Georgia, cannibalism was a thing at Alder Creek, but only amongst the children. And Kisberg, last I checked, wasn't a child. So she's saying that only the children were eating and that he had nothing to do with it. So now, again, we have... a Another very varied report that nobody can agree on. The adults were feeding it to them, but not partaking. That's what she said. 
So the, the adults didn't eat anybody. They were just cutting it up and feeding it to the children. Her father fed them the flesh of an unidentified person. And in another instance, Elizabeth Donner, Jacob's wife, cooked up, cooked up the arm of Samuel Shoemaker, presumably as food for the children. I'm thinking Georgia Donner really did believe she ate human flesh, even if McLashen failed to see, her, see it her way. The reason I say that is because the sickos orchestrating the Donner psyop may have, may have convinced the children that it was legitimate when in fact they were likely eating dog or even deer flesh. So what I'm saying here is that I think that the children really were convinced and that they grew up, they were the ones to support the cannibalism narrative. Actually the adults, they weren't into it. They were denying it and saying, no, that's not true. Or they were saying it immediately and then taking it back later and said, we lied about it. If the sheer amount of cannibalism is dizzying, and it should be, I will attempt to make sense of the situation for you. The snowshoe party departed Truckee Lake for Sutter's Fort and within a matter of days took up cannibalism. Meanwhile, the daughters at Alder Creek, knowing nothing of the snowshoe party's cannibalism, they took up cannibalism. And then finally, the larger party at Truckee Lake or Donner Lake, also knowing nothing of the snowshoe party and six miles removed from the Donners, did the same. Count that up on your fingers and we're dealing with three separate accounts of cannibalism. The only thing they held in common was that they had all taken Hastings cut off together. Why three separate instances? Because the storytellers were fleeing everything at the wall and hoping that at least one of them would stick. Speaking of the adults in the party, Margaret Breen accused the Donner girls of being quite the little cannibals. Seven-year-old Mary Donner in particular had an appetite for brother Isaac Donner, as well as Franklin Graves Jr. and Elizabeth Graves. Apparently there was a whole lot of pass the leg and more please going around among the, the wee people, particularly the little Donner girls. They like to eat their own brothers, siblings. It's like I said, the adults were the ones feeding the information to the more susceptible of the branch. Not only that, but then they were also reminding them of their deed years thereafter for decades, you know, saying, oh, you children, you ate, you know, you ate dead people. Uh, like the true controllers they were. In turn, a host of others accused Margaret Breen of not playing the part because according to her, she was not one of them. She was saying that she didn't eat anybody. Margaret Breen ate nobody, but then in turn, look at her host of accusers. Uh, claiming that she was the one who ate fellow members of the wagon train. So what happened is, is that, is that she was saying, you know, she was accusing so-and-so, but she said, I didn't eat anybody. And then other people are jumping up and go, oh, no, you ate people, all right. All right, so we see here, all told, roughly half of the Donner Party survivors eventually resorted to eating human flesh, according to the History Channel. So according to the History Channel, only half of the Donner Party survivors resorted to cannibalism. I haven't the faintest clue how they came to that conclusion with all the he said, she said floating around. Seems to me like everyone is suspect. Still though, of the 81 original members, 45 personified the California in California bust. Those who busted were up for grabs. But then half of that number implies 22 or 23 persons who didn't share in the barbecue ribs. Why couldn't Margaret have been one of them? 
I figure she overstepped her bounds in fingering the daughter, uh, daughters and didn't follow through with her prearranged role because her accusers are making an exception to the rule and claiming she couldn't possibly have forsaken a win uh, winter without some warmed up bum biscuits. So people are basically her, you know, historians are saying, oh, she couldn't possibly have survived without eating people. How do they know that, though? They're saying that half of the survivors didn't eat anybody, so why not her? All right, moving on. It seems as though many of the participants were backpedaling on their claims, and the bicycle wouldn't even become popular until the 1880s. Anyone who's read anything about secret societies knows the, the, uh, the volt face routine is a naughty no-no. You sign your soul over to the big boy and then live with that decision. Well, Jean Baptist Tru uh, Trudeau, I don't know if he's related to the Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, might as well, uh, might, might as well uh, have worn flip-flops around the California coast because he was one of them, a flip-flopper. He started out as a cannibal, dun, 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 except for when he didn't want to show up at the Masonic conventions anymore, signing signatures at the cannibal booth, and flip the script on the entire story. Well, according to an account published by H.A. Wise in 1847, Jean-Baptiste Trudeau boasted of his own heroism but also spoke in lyric detail of eating Jacob Donner and said he had eaten a baby raw. Many years later, Trudeau met Elizabeth Donner uh, Hutton and denied cannibalizing anyone. He reiterated that in an interview with a St. Louis newspaper in 1891 when he was 60 years old. All right, so look at how Wiki phrases it. Trudeau boasted of his own heroism to H.A. Wise in 1847. 1847 would be the very year of the Sire. He went on and on in lyric detail regarding his menu selections, which included Jacob Donner and also a baby, which came as a sushi option because he said he ate it raw, sounding very much as a crisis actor would. Fast forward and he admitted down the road uh, to uh, Donner, one of the two George, uh, George Donner daughters, Eliza, uh, that the entire scenario was invented by the media and that he was compli uh, complacent in it. I know Wiki doesn't outright state that. They chose their words carefully, claiming that he was living in denial, but what would you expect? It's all a projection. Given the obvious, it's the storytellers who think you need protected from the truth. The cleanup crew has had a field day taking the mop out on these people. The person assigned with the task of telling Trudeau's tale in an 1847 book was Henry August Augustus Wise. Here is his Wiki article here. Look into him. He was a Navy man, seeing action in the Gulf of California during the war with Mexico. And then later, he played a vital part in the destruction of his own home state of Virginia under orders from Mr. Lincoln. He was also an author writing under the pen name of Harry Gringo, as if that's not suspicious. There is more of your MMM connection. The media may be a wing of the military industrial complex, but the first Donner Party hoaxer, Harry Gringo, AKA Henry Wise was the military. All right, now we see here, uh, what I wrote down, uh, put a uh, copy down, the Alder Creek excavations conducted in 2003 and 2004, turned up more than 16,000 bone fragments in all, including the remains of rodents, rabbits, deer, horses, oxen, and cattle. They also found canine bones, supporting accounts by survivors that they ate their pet dogs. All right, so the entire Donner Party narrative came crashing down upon its own head in 03 and 04, though very few, if anyone, seemed to notice. Kelly Dixon, 
from the University of Montana and Julie uh, Shablitsky from the University of Oregon Museum led an excavation of the Donner, part, uh, the Donner family's Alder Creek campsite and uncovered thousands of tiny burned fragments of bone. You can read all about it here, there's the link. They analyzed the bones. Among them, there were 250 large bones that showed evidence of cutting, chopping, and boiling. The question of the day was whether or not they were human. They were not. There was not one human bone identified among them. So much for the Donner daughters eating the dead. So much for Kessberg, the vampire, also. It was all invented. That's not even the whole of it, though. Remember when I told you the snowshoers were perfectly capable of hunting more than one deer, even though they only admitted to one and they were trekking a great distance? The Donners ate their own fair share of deer. Try not to let that little nugget of information escape you. Nestled among the fragments of cattle, horse, and dog were deer, which baffled Robin's team, mostly because there is no prior mention of the Donners hunting deer in the record books. That little inconvenient tidbit was left out of the diaries, telling us that truth-telling wasn't the selling feature of the operation. Excavators found pieces of slate and crockery around the hearth, including shards of broken china, all of which was left behind by winter uh, of 47 participants. And who was the last of them, according to the media? Kessberg. Their conclusions paint a very different picture than what the diary writers as well as the media and its contributing crisis actors would have us believe. Children were schooled at Alder Creek. Tea time was likely a thing. Another piece of incriminating evidence against the script writers were the bodies, all of which were notably absent in the archaeological uh, ex excavation. I know they make no mention of not finding them, but it's likely because cognitive dissonance is a real condition. I have scoured various articles on their finds and am seeing no mention anywhere of skull fragments, teeth, or femur bones. If the Donners didn't eat the dead, then surely they buried them. But then where are they? Dixon and Shablitsky and the, uh, the work crew dug up bones, no? Yeah, they dug up thousands of bones. Archaeologists uh, take the garden trial to bones all the time, and they can easily identify a human when they see it. Three years ago, I wrote about how the grave sites of John, John Snyder was never located because the entire story in which James Reed cut his heart out with a knife was a media concoction, as per the Lake Truckee butterfly farmer. Well, there are no bodies. What conclusion does that lead you to? Wow, I made it through. I did it. And it's 9.30, so it's not bad. I'm 30 minutes over what I try to do normally. It looks like the group, for the mo most part, I lost about 10 people through the, the bloody, gory parts. Um, looks like you guys are still here. So I didn't have anybody. I, I doubt there were any questions taking tonight. And I'm all zapped. That took everything out of me. Like I said, that was probably, it could have been a record, uh, 76 pages. So uh, with that, I'm going to officially end this tonight. Thank you all for coming tonight. And let me just sum this up for anyone who's wondering why I went through that long activity. Uh, that was important to, you know, no, I don't think anyone has ever done that before. I mean, the, the archaeological evidence at the end, uh, there are articles written out there where the, the archaeologists who were there, they're just, they're like, yeah. But our conclusions is that nobody was eaten. 
but they, they don't even want to show you the fact that nobody apparently died there either. They, they're not even thinking that. They're like, yeah, I guess they just uh, made up the whole thing. You know, they're not even talking about hoaxes at this point, right? They, they're not thinking that way. They wouldn't think that the media would purposely lie to people. But, you know, somehow there was a disconnect or something, right? But all that to say, there's no bodies, there's no bones, they didn't eat anybody, it's all fabricated. Why did they do it? Because they, need, they, they needed to keep people on the path. You need to keep people on the trail, in this case, the Oregon Trail. They need to get people out to California, manifest destiny, westward expansionism at the perfect time. This was leading up to the gold rushes, 1846, 1847. They're going to discover gold the next year. They're going to bring people out. Everyone at this time, the Donner Party has been the talk of the town for all of 1847. Like people are going like, oh, we don't want to be the Donner Party, right? It's, it's the moral lesson. You keep on the path, bring them out at the right time. They sell them all this real estate. You know, San Francisco, Sacramento, they're abandoned with the gold rush. So people are arriving to what they're told is a city built already. And all of the people all left because of the gold. You guys know how it goes. Uh, that's a wraps. That's all, folks. And uh, let's go over to the, the general voice chat. I'll meet you guys over there. See you guys there. Thank you.